welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Let Down and Don't Know Shit, as well as Mother of Mercy, Forever Night, Forever Morning, with Bob Wilson being our guest tonight, and this being two of the bands that we speak a lot about in this episode. I'd like to give some people a frame of reference to the bands that he was in, and he... As other bands. I mean, I could have probably had a 25-minute interlude of the bands he's in. But with the story as it progresses and our focus on Letdown and Mother Mercy, I wanted to include these tracks. Absolute fucking bangers. And I'm just excited for this episode more than you may ever know. For those who don't listen to the podcast often, just checking in. Bob Wilson is someone who I watched grow from a teen into a grown-ass man. Someone who I mentored through not just just hardcore scene stuff, but as he became a promoter. And we touch all on this. So this is my baby boy. This is my day one. And it's been a long time coming. And I can't wait for you guys to listen to this. Now, as we all know, there's been some goddamn difficulties with this podcast. I've been working the glitches out. I got some things running, but... While we're talking, while we're listening, I just want to shout some things out. The last two episodes, I didn't really do a great job with that. First of all, Philadelphia Hardcore still has shows. You can always check us out at phillyhcshows.com. We are also on Twitter at phillyhcshows and Instagram, phillyhcshows. Uh, Bob and myself got some wild shit coming up. And you can go there. It's probably the easiest because you never know when you're going to listen to this episode. Big ups to Bob for those who listen to episode 50, FYA. That motherfucker is announced. If you're listening to it, it's about to be on sale today. Get your fucking ticket. This shit will sell out. Also, the Trinity, which is me, Richie Crutch, Chris Mahmood, who runs Reverb and been in a million bands and a future guest. Well, we come together every once in a while with Keystone Jams and, and obviously the Keystone Hardcore Jam. We drop more of the lineup. We're going to continue to do so. Make sure to check us out at Keystone HC Jam on Instagram. That show is going to be Saturday, December 11th. So far confirmed and announced. Youth of Today, E-Town Concrete, All Out War, Death Threat. More coming. It's going to be sick. We haven't done one since 2019. COVID fucked us up or this would already been an annual gimmick. And we would have been on year three. Please come out and support. A lot of people in hardcore don't have the traditional family. And this is a great time to get together in the holiday season. Things are continuing to go on. There may be some mask requirements at some of our shows. There may be VAT cards at some of our shows. These are the things that the venues impose on us so that way they can continue to operate as a business. If you would like to take any quarrel or argument with me about these practices, build your own fucking venue and we'll do a show at your fucking venue. Otherwise, shut the fuck up. This is how people are operating. This is how shit is going to continue until the time when the state mandate something different we have to follow protocols because we don't want to get shut down and fined there ain't a fucking gofundme that you can put up 
that'll keep us in the um even after the fallout we will probably never be able to come back got to play by the rules to keep shit going if you don't like the vac i don't know what to tell you it's your fucking choice if you want to hear my opinion on that go to my other podcast which came out this week the rule of 3 which i do with Richie from Wisdom and Chains and the Post America podcast, OG Jeff from Crescent Tattoos and the Broadsheet Breakdown podcast. It's three podcasters coming together, you know, shooting the shit. Uh, episode four we just dropped. Fucking fantastic. Glad we got together with the boys. And um, you want to hear my thoughts on it? You go to that one. I'm not going to talk about it here. Going into this episode, I really knew so much of this but I wanted everybody to hear and even with knowing Bob's story and knowing him so long and being as close as we are as friends there was things that I learned this is a story of someone who came up in the most to me the best way possible in hardcore young angry aggressive and didn't have everything handed to him not in real life, not in the hardcore life. And he had to fight and kick and earn every spot that he got. Perseverance, love, obsession, all these things play heavily in what would make Bob better over time. And when I say better, I don't just mean like a nicer person because he was out of his goddamn mind like all of us. But just he was more attuned acutely to what the hardcore scene needed by his perspective. And over the course of the last eight years with the FYA fests, it is unequivocally his greatest talent is finding bands, listening to demos, listening to shit that's not even out yet, and then finding a place for it and giving it a bigger platform. Bob intuitively knows what bands to go where on his bill but he also finds the cracks where, you know, as he said, when his own bands, well, there was a lot of heavy bands right now, so I started doing another fast band. Well, everybody was doing fast stuff, so I went back. You know, like, having that, uh, uh, I don't know if you want to call it being in tune or whatever it is, it's a talent that he possesses and has used to bring out so many bands from all over this country. That's another thing. He's not just like a guy who cares about his own friends and his own little group. If he likes your band, he likes your band. If he, if he, I don't, you know, as he's, you know, we talked about it in the last episode, you know, he's got Cruelty, who's coming out from Japan. He's got the Spies from Scotland. It, he has no limits, and it absolutely adds to the whole thing on what he does and how he positively changes hardcore for the better. But this isn't just a story about a promoter or a booking agent guy or a music guy. This is a story of a kid growing up in hardcore and facing a lot of real-life challenges. And I really, 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 really can't stress that I'm super biased because he's one of my closest friends in the world. And I'm just happy to share his story with the world. So thank you to Bob for giving me three and a half hours. I hope you guys fucking enjoy this. Ever since I had a podcast, I knew at some point I'd have to bring him on. And I couldn't think of a better chance after we just announced the show and did the play-by-play breakthrough, which, uh, breakdown rather. If you want to listen to that and hadn't yet, that's on the previous episode, episode 50. 
Check that out. But in celebration of FY8, the Ocho, here's Bob Wilson, his whole fucking story. Let's fucking go. We are talking to Robert Taylor Wilson the Fourth, also known as Bob Wilson, for a huge portion of the last 20 years already, which is so crazy to think about. Bob Wilson has led the charge in Philadelphia from the suburbs to make a new kind of hardcore scene a lot different than the one that I grew up in. And the first time I ran into him, he was a small, angst-ridden teenager who had a big fucking mouth and people didn't enjoy and I loved every minute of it. And in fact, seeing his early bands really just showed me that not only can a kid be a young asshole with a lot of shit to say on stage, but they can also carry with them a lot of what this scene was missing, which was the idea that Philadelphia for a long time, if you weren't a city kid, you were seen as like secondary and there was Phillies versus Burbs shit for as long as there ever was, even though most of Philadelphia hardcore was made up of people who moved into the city. That notwithstanding, it was Bob and his era and his friends that have completely captivated and rebuilt Philadelphia hardcore and instituted stuff that completely changed the landscape, not only for Southeast Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania as a whole, but now the entire country as he is the purveyor organizer and soul mad scientist behind FYA fest, which was announced earlier this week. And we're going to get into everything, but most importantly for those listening to the show many times over, I've, brought him up as a protege and someone that I initially helped get rolling. But as the years wear on, I feel like someone who was once someone who I mentored is now teaching me things. And he is one of my closest friends. He is my day one person. If there's ever a problem in my life, home, show, whatever, I call Bob. And I'm just grown to be so proud of the teenager who became not only a man, but a leader, a protector, and one of hardcore punk's greatest modern day champions. Bob, thank you for coming on the show. That was, uh, I'm pretty sure we can just end the podcast there because that was, it's probably not going to get better than that. So I appreciate everything you said there. The, um, the hardest thing about talking to you in this podcast format is that, Usually, the the person's going to throw me some curveballs, and I'm and I'm still excited to see if there's going to be some Bob Wilson curveballs. But having known you so long, I I feel especially after that amazing announcement from FYA earlier this week, and the fact that we covered the show on episode fifty, I really wanted to get into the person behind the fest and the person that you are. Because I think it's integral to why you book FYA the way that you do. And so for so many people who checked that episode out, thank you. Um, there's nothing like a festival announce and then the whole world shares and reshares. And I remember early on with this article, you were one of our greatest um, people echoing it. 
And I love that we were able to reciprocate and do that for FYA. So as someone who's listened to the podcast almost every episode, I imagine, um, you know how we start. Bring us back to the beginning. Where is the origin of Bob Wilson? Where does this begin? So, yeah, uh, you know, my, my early years until, you know, my, my, my earliest memories were, I guess, in the Northeast, um, a couple blocks from the Steves on Bustleton. We lived in a, a shitty little apartment uh, next to that shopping center. And, uh, yeah, we lived there until I was about four and then uh, moved to the Burbs after that, just, just all around there. So that was basically just, you know, my, my real early years were spent around there. Um, now at what point, what was going on in your, your home as far as music? Like, do you, what point do you can cognizantly remember music being played in your house? Yeah, my parents, you know, they weren't, uh, you know, musically inclined, you know, to play it or anything like that, but they both loved, you know, my parents were super young when they had me. So, um, you know, my dad was more like a, like a Black Sabbath, Van Halen, Ozzy, ACDC, like that kind of shit. Um, and then my mom, like she's really into Yes is her favorite band. She also loves Van Halen, like the Eagles. Uh, you know, they, they always had music playing, you know, in, in some capacity, you know, or driving around listening to, you know, MMR, YSP, ZZO, you know, the local rock stations. And uh, yeah, so there, you know, there's always music in the house, just, just blasting. So yeah, from a real early age, I, you know, I remember hearing Van Halen songs and fucking, you know, the shit off Back in Black, I guess, would have been at the time and all that. And then uh, that shit was just always around. Now, because you're so young, moving out to the suburbs, you want to kind of, were you really ever aware of the difference between the city and the suburbs at that time? Nah, you know, you know, I, I was like literally fucking four when we moved to, to Horsham. Um, so yeah, it was just, I just knew that I went from a weird shitty apartment to a weird shitty like townhouse. And I, I didn't really know the difference. You know what I mean? So what was growing up like then? What, what were you doing? What was your early interests? What was the, uh, what was the, the times as you lead into your, your early teens and when you first started discovering more than just what was on the radio? Um, you know, I, I, you know, I played sports from a real early age. Like I played soccer from when I was three. Um, you know, so we were always playing some kind of sport, you know, soccer, baseball, all that shit. Um, yeah, just, you know, we, I went to six different elementary schools. So we were always fucking just moving around and shit, like all, all over the burbs and, uh, you know, just, just still playing sports and, you know, being on the travel team and all that shit. And then, uh, yeah, that it's basically, I mean, it was obviously hectic, you know, because it's always just fucking starting a new school every year and meeting new people every year. So, uh, yeah, early on, it was it was a lot of that just moving around and, you know, kind of trying to find your way with that shit. Now, at what point do you think that you started getting an identity around music as opposed to being uh, a jock? Um, Honestly, you know, probably... And like third grade is when I started to check bands out more on my own, like, you know, the mid nineties shit, you know, like the Weezer, Green Day, Smashing Pumpkins, Oasis, all that shit. It's when, you know, the stuff I started figuring out on my own and then, uh, going into like probably like sixth grade is when I heard Rage Against the Machine 
and I, I was like the first band I was really obsessed with. And, uh, yeah, from there I was just, you know, I, it always kind of ran side by side. Like I was obsessed with sports and I was obsessed with music. So I kind of just took it all in and just tried to find as much of it as possible and, and learn as much as possible about both. And, uh, yeah, they kind of run, ran perpendicular to each other. Now, where were you getting your music from at that point? Uh, it was a lot of, um, like guitar world, honestly, like magazines like that. Like, um, what the hell is that shit? Fucking circus magazine, Kerrang, like all the, all the magazines, you know, I'd go to the grocery store and just, my mom would be grocery shopping and I would just get a fucking magazine and just sit there and read, you know, especially like in the back of those things. I remember they would have like the more like aggressive shit, you know, so I would just kind of take mental notes of, you know, things I was reading and, uh, yeah, basically just that. It was kind of a lot of self-discovery, you know, because I didn't have a lot of friends that were into, you know, anything beyond. I mean, especially in like sixth grade, I feel like the shit was like boy bands and Spice Girls, I think, was like the the real popular shit going on. And um, so, yeah, that was it was a lot of just me just finding shit on my own and then just figuring it out from there. What was your favorite Spice Girl? <sighs> yeah, it goes back and forth. I, you know, it was Ginger. At the time, it's probably grown to be baby at this Dang. point. But, uh, you know, you know how it goes. All right, had to know. I mean, you brought it up. I had to know. <laughs> now, you're 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 a couple years younger, so you were still. This is like seventh, eighth grade. You weren't quite even in high school yet. Yeah, I was. Uh, all of that shit was like in sixth grade, and then in seventh grade, um, I had friends that were one of my best friends was super into downset. And a couple of other friends are in like Biohazard and Machine Head and, and all that shit. So, you know, with that and then reading the magazines and stuff, like I found out, like I saw somebody wear an agnostic front shirt or something like that. So I got that, the live CD um, from the record store near me. I got Bad Brains live in Amsterdam, 1987, I remember. Um, but all that shit was like, you know, that Biohazard, all the Roadrunner stuff. It was all just... I didn't understand that was different. You know what I mean? Like, I just thought it was just like heavy shit is heavy shit. Like, Oh, this is the same as like corn or something. It's just a different kind of thing. And then, um, as eighth grade, I kind of figured out more of, uh, the separation with it because, uh, this kid Kyle moved to our school and had like Liberty spikes and then shaved his head and then had like a biscuits hoodies and stick of it all hoodies and was into like actual hardcore shit. And then, I was telling him, he was asking what I liked one day, and I, I told him what kind of things I was into. He's like, all right, well, it sounds like you like hardcore, so fuck all that other shit. He's like, go listen to these bands. You know, they're all in Victory or, you know, whatever. And then, uh, you know, bands like Hatebreed and, and Buried Alive, I guess, at the time and all that shit and Strife. And then kind of just made me, he kind of alerted me that, yo, this is different and this is why. And uh, he kind of opened my eyes to a lot of that kind of shit. Is it the same Kyle or a different Kyle that I'm thinking of? Not the Kyle you're thinking okay. of, not this. This kid was he. He was great, and I am really thankful for him. But by tenth grade, he had fully committed to like the Coheed and Cambria scene and was over punk and hardcore, which is kind of crazy. And then years later, the first this is hardcore. He was actually doing sound at uh, the fucking venue, which definitely threw me for a loop. I, so I was kind of weird. I think that's there. pretty epic, and I'm glad that he deviated off the path and became an excellent sound man. Actually. And if I if I remember correctly, um, we didn't have at some point we had to get rid of their club sound guy. And I think I know the guy specifically because 
the bands were mad pissed off at him. I think the first like two years, and I and I don't know how Sean did it, but at some point Sean basically told Mr. Chan, "We're bringing our own fucking sound," and I think your boy mm-hmm. had a big hand in that. <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, what the fuck are you doing here?" He's like, "Oh, I'm doing sound." He's like, "What the fuck are you doing here?" I was like, "Oh, I'm playing," and we hadn't seen each other since like high school, so he was very confused what the hell was going on. But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of sad to hear that he, he got ixnade, but. Is what it is. Yeah, he 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 did not make it to the second season. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, he's sitting out anyways, so he deserves it. It's now, fine. was the idea of live music and seeing stuff even in your, in your in your world at this point, or was just you were just a fan of music from all the media and hadn't seen anything live yet? I mean, my only experience with live shit was like the live records and just seeing shit, you know, like on MTV or whatever the fuck. Um, you know, I know, like, I never went to concerts when I was younger. You know, I never went to, like, you know, in elementary school. My parents never bought me to shit. Um, so I went to hardcore shows before I went to, like, actual, like, concerts, which is kind of backwards, I feel like, for most people. But, uh, yeah, like, I think in eighth grade, like, about summer going into ninth grade, I started going to, to more actual hardcore shows. Can you tell the scenario that got you to your first hardcore show? fuck um i'm I'm trying to remember like in the burbs all the shows kind of blended together you know like uh there would be shows at lenape and and percocy and yeah all them towns yeah so all all that shit kind of blends together um the the one that sticks out the most from early on besides you know like sick of it all at the truck or um you know something like that is dysphoria playing in telford they played the bureau hall there and uh I was like, you know, my friend's band was opening up for them. Um, but, you know, the kids I'd become friends with when I lived in Percocy. And they're like, yo, we're open for the story tonight. And the guy was like, to me, that's like fucking opening for Metallica at that point. Like, I was like, holy fuck, you guys are going to play with this for you? So I roll with them to the show. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was crazy. Like, uh, that was a show. It ended up with the, before the set, they said, if there's any fights, we're, we're fucking done. And it made it through most of the set. And then there's a huge brawl at the end of it. So, you know, getting to see that and just kind of seeing everything that hardcore had to offer all in the same show, you know, it, it was a, that was something that stuck out super early on. Yeah. At that stage in Dysphoria's career, they were legally called the Metallica of Lansdale and the entire borough. So I'm glad you gave them by the proper name. Yeah. Uh, Dysphoria shows were ripe for people like me and my friends that beat up the suburb kids. So, Great example of um, great behavior in our 20s by being dickheads to young kids. So glad that you got to see that firsthand as an exposure to hardcore. <laughs> I, I did not get, up, get beat up, thankfully, because I was up front in a pair of UFOs, spiked up hair with an AFI shirt. So I was definitely prime candidate to get my ass whooped, and I somehow avoided it. So I was pretty thankful for that. I will say that. It's usually the guy with the sleeveless, um, the sleeveless flannel with the hood, who's just trying to go in there all shoulders pitting. That's usually the kind of guys <laughs> who got rocked out there. But um, so it's got to be exciting to be like a young kid and you're seeing like the the big, the big band in the area and you're hearing this music and you're seeing this whole fury. Did you come home and were you even able to sleep after you seen that show? Nah, I mean, I was like, you know, I was, I was in before, but specifically that show, I was like, there's, this is the only thing I want to fucking do. I was like, 
you know, the fact that a band like this to me, you know, that was like the biggest band in the world and just being like, yo, this band can play five minutes from me and my friend's band can play the show with them. And those dudes are just chilling at the show and all this chaos is going on. I was just like, I don't want to do anything else. Nah, that's a great way. It's a great way to get um, cemented into the culture by something like that. And no better band. And I, and again, uh, for those who want to listen to it, check out episode three with Chris Dysphoria. And um, just a great people, great band, lo- truly local legends. And so what comes after just a, just the average learn more about some bands locally going to shows? Like how does that, how does that inspire you and what do you do with that inspiration? Yeah. Just, uh, you know, especially that age, you're such a sponge. I feel like, like I liked everything across the board. You know, I was just, I liked E-Town. I liked Barry Live. I liked Floor Punch. I liked fucking Poison the Well. Like I, I liked pretty much anything, you know, without any real rhyme or reason. Um, so, you know, my friends and I would, I would, you know, work, work one day a week and either save that money up and buy a bunch of CDs or pay for a show and then buy a shirt at the show and all that. And then my friend, you know, we'd go to Siren Records in Doylestown and just sit at the listening station for like six hours and just check out different fucking bands. Um, yeah, my best friend, Tim and I, we basically went full steam, like into it, um, with each other and, uh, you know, he had a crazy, he bought every fucking CD under the sun. So uh, we would just sit in his room and just fucking listen to shit, read the thanks list, write down, you know, what bands looked cool in the insert and what shirts the guys were wearing. Um, yeah, a, a band early on when we were in ninth grade that he tried to throw his, he got the quicksand slip CD and he tried to throw it out because he said it sucked wow. and it sounded like tool. And I was like, wow. I was like, yo, if you throw it out, like I'll take it. And he's like, I mean, this band sucks, but sure, if you want it, you can have it. Tim, Tim, and I was like, I got home. I was like, you dumb motherfucker. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, it was like, this fucking record's amazing. Could so you tell the difference between Slip that. not being like part of the mainstream music or did you just see it as like another mainstream act? Could you tell the difference? I knew because, you know, we loved Girl Biscuits at the time. I was like, oh, this is like the guy from Girl Biscuits band after that. So I know that this is like steeped in hardcore and it's not just, you know, another band on like, you know, the Buzzbin MTV tour or whatever. Um, so there, I could definitely tell there was a difference. I would say, honestly because it vaguely sounded like tool that's probably what made me interested i was like oh yeah i can i can see what this is doing and i like this when i uh got to frankfurt high in my second year of high school i was trying to play this game because my first year of high school i got into a lot of trouble and only wore crazy t-shirts and so the nirvana soundgarden tool whatever gimmick was hard in the in the school and all these fucking dickheads who didn't fuck with that music. All of a sudden that was everybody's uniform. And so rock and shit like quicksand to me was like not fitting in because they don't fuck with it, but also being like, you know, I'm above that. You know what I mean? And I remember like you yep. brought up Oasis. Um, I remember this chick that we grew up with coming to sit with me and Kit at the table. And we're both wearing like like he's wearing a ska shirt, I'm wearing a quicksand shirt, and she knew the bands, and I'm like, all right, this is the right table to be at, you know? Like we're not with them fucking nerds, <laughs> but um, I I still to this day, there's very few times where I, you see a band that's connected to hardcore and something like 120 minutes on MTV, and you're like, oh fuck, like you know, that was the earliest moment for me where. I was like, oh shit, our music is liked by popular, you know, like it's getting popular. 
you know yeah. um so give me the rundown i mean does your mom give you the fucking you can only go out these amount of nights or like would you just get free reign how was it at home being young as you are slowly making this whole thing about you know what you're gonna do so yeah so in ninth grade um you know i was probably like what 13 14 you know i wasn't i lived 45 minutes from most of my friends so i'll get dropped off like after after school on friday i'll just stay at my friends all weekend in doylestown and so you know she would just she would just know i was at his house so his parents wanted to do whatever the fuck we wanted so you know if we had money the thing is too like it wasn't really easy to find out about shows still like you know there, there was some internet shit but not like a ton and um so unless it was like a bigger show we didn't really hear about it. You know what I mean? Unless we saw a flyer in the record store in Doyle Sound or something. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so pretty much I just did whatever the fuck I wanted as long as it was on a weekend. If it was a weekday, I remember my mom was going to take me to a, what the fuck was it? Like AFI, Death by Stereo, something else. And my teacher called when we were walking out the door and told her about how I hadn't been to school all week because I just kept on just skipping <laughs> and doing other shit. So she was like, she slammed the door. She's like, are you fucking kidding me? I was like, what's up? She's like, yeah, your teacher just called. You haven't been to school. A week. What the fuck you been doing? And she's like, you are, I'm not taking you to this fucking concert tonight. Like get the fuck in your, I was like, God damn it. I was like snitch ass teacher. So that was pretty much, uh, yeah, if it was a weekday and I, I was still up there, I, it was a no go. But after that in 10th grade, summer going into 10th grade and moving on with my dad. So I could go to, uh, the high school all my friends went to, uh, in Doyle sound. And, uh, he, his thing was, as long as you're home for school in the morning, I don't care what the fuck you do. And he, he would do way crazier shit than me. Like he would be like, oh, where the fuck is he going? He like, he'd be just be in New Orleans for Mardi Gras for two weeks or whatever the fuck. And, uh, so he pretty much, he couldn't really tell me what the hell to do. Cause he wasn't even home at the time. And he even, I didn't know where the fuck he was. So pretty much every night in high school, I'll just be out hanging out with people driving around, you know sitting at fucking 7-Eleven while our friend worked or, you know, whatever. So I pretty much have free reign to do, you know, go to whatever I wanted and and do whatever I wanted at that point. Now, what are your first thoughts on trying to be in a band? How, how long did it take for that to come into mind? That was, uh, you know, when we, me and my friend got super into shit, we always talked about, First, we had the dumbest idea. Like, dude, we need two vocalists. Just me and you, just going crazy, just fucking, you know, saying all this crazy so shit. Whatever. Was about. <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah. Like, because and it makes sense, obviously, because we loved uh, most player season at that time. Like, we one of the best, all spelled, one of the best so. and most unsung EPs. Period. And that's that's probably the inspiration for it. But uh, we didn't have anybody to be in a band with, so he just for some reason he bought like a mic and a PA speaker. And just had it in his room, so we would just put on a record and just take turns with the mic, just screaming and jumping around his room and shit, which is so fucking stupid to think about. But uh, uh, I always I wanted to be in a band, but I sucked at it for sure. Like I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, and I would just basically like beg people to like let me sing for them. And uh, I remember actually the kids who ended up being in Rock Bottom and Ten Ton Hammer and all that. They had a band uh, called. Band was it? It, was, it was either Mortalis or Dead Again at the time. And they had two they had two singers, but the singers could never make it to practice on Tuesdays. So I would just ride with the kid John Lowe to practice every Tuesday and just fill in as a singer and just like say random shit and just freak out for an hour or whatever. But uh it was just like, you know, just nothing serious ever. 
And then my friends started the band and we thought it would be funny. And they had three singers already. And I was like, well, you might, you have three, you might as well do four. Like, let me be in the band. Like, okay, cool. And, uh, which is also stupid as fuck to think about. And, um, so we would practice, we only had three fucking mics. And so I would be the one left out because they're like, yo, your voice is like the worst. So you actually don't need to do anything, but you know, whatever. (laughs) So they were, uh, we would play shows. They would like, you know, again, they're mostly not before mics of shows. It's like, yeah, you're the odd man out, bro. You just got to just kind of wing it. And uh, so, yeah, and then I would try out for other bands. You know, I would ask to be in other bands. Like, yo, man, your voice is just terrible. You can't fuck this thing for us. So I would be like, all right, that's fine. I don't give a fuck. Like, yeah, I'm just going to keep doing it or trying to. Uh, so, yeah, it wasn't until a little before uh, Letdown started that I found people that would actually be willing to have me in a band with them. And, um yeah, they, uh, I basically at that point, I was just like, you know what? Fuck everybody. Like, I'm just doing this to spite everybody who says my voice is ass now. And, uh, say so they were like the first people that are actually down to have me like legitimately sing in the band. So yeah, like your Boogie Nights moment. I'll show you. <laughs> I'll be the biggest. <laughs> I'll be in all these bands. <laughs> and it is, I, I thought about that recently. I was like, fuck, man. This is definitely why I just keep on doing shit to prove to these people who haven't gone to shows in 24 years. <laughs> or 14 years or whatever that you know like i oh you think i suck well i'm doing another band so fuck you you suck you know what I mean? no i think and that's integral to your story is the fact that me and you talk about so many things at hardcore it's weird because it's all it's hard to bring up on the show not because it's uh incendiary <laughs> but because we say it so much so it's like oh yeah he already knows but one of my biggest pet peeves is when people who are like the local cool guy stops being in the band. And then that bitch is a ghost in like six months. It's like, yep. Oh cool. Your band's over. Oh, you, Oh, you gave up on hardcore because people don't mosh for you anymore. Fuck that. And yeah, that's and so I love that. That's what your moment. Now, how did you link with, um, how did you link up with the boys and let them? They, you know, so, uh, two of us went to high school together. Um, I knew the one drew, because he was actually friends with my older sister and they were, you know, they were, they were super good friends. They had the same group of friends and all that shit. Um, and he definitely didn't like me at first, but yeah, I guess he came around on me at least a little bit. And then, uh, you know, we had Justin obviously. And then, uh, so we didn't obviously like any other fucking place on earth, there was a lack of drummers and, you know, everybody had, you know, their own bands going on. Like Drew had on course, which is like, you know, kind of, a like a young blood records kind of sound of band and all that. So I would just, ride with them everywhere and then they're playing a local show and this this young ass kid with a fucking devil lock was crushing it on drums and i was like dude who the fuck he had like a misfits tattoo and like all this shit and then he was literally 15 at the time and it was kimball and we were like yo are you straight edge he's like yeah i'm straight edge like all right you're gonna play drums in our band because you're like a crazy drummer so we basically i think just because we all were into the same kind of shit somehow and we all kind of had the same outlook on everything. Like it just kind of worked and, you know, made us, it brought, brought us all together. Now, what was available to you as far as where to practice? What were your thoughts on shows? Like, where do you, uh, where do you, where are you at in like trying to take the band beyond, Hey, we're going to jam out and practice. We, uh, so literally if it wasn't for Kimball, I, we definitely wouldn't have played more than one show because like I was a terrible singer. The people who played the instruments couldn't play for shit. 
So he's definitely, you know, like I, to this day, if, if you have a good drummer, I think that can carry your fucking band and make you worth anything. So we would just practice at his, ba- uh, his parents' basement and just write, that's where we wrote the demo and all that back when I actually enjoyed going to band practice. And, uh, me personally, all I wanted to do was I didn't have any crazy lofty ambitions. You know, I, I didn't want to just get big enough to tour with whatever fucking band or, you know, play the opening slot when they came through town. Like I just wanted to, in my head, I was like, if we can play one show at the Funrama and cover judge and have people mosh, that's all I give a fuck about. Like, I don't really care about anything else. And, uh, obviously that didn't happen, but, um, yeah, so we would just play, you know, people's birthday parties, fucking just hop on metalcore shows and try to ruin the show for everybody. Um, just pretty much any single kind of thing that was going on in the area, we would just, we would just show up and, you know, if we weren't on the actual flyer, we would just set up and play and then just try to try to cause as much mayhem as possible with our group of friends. Now, what was going on for you to kind of be aware of fun Rama and a bigger picture beyond the suburbs? Like what did that come before the band or was that kind of all falling in place at the same time? Yeah, that was all before. Like, uh, you know, I got to go to Kill Time, luckily, at least a few times. What was the first show you and went then, to Kill Time? I, I get them kind of mixed up, but I'm pretty sure it was the middle of winter. It was like Hope Conspiracy, Dark Day Dawning, and a couple more. And there was like probably 23 people yeah. there. And, um, that was one of, that that was one of Dark Day Dawning's first kind of shows, too. Yeah, I, I'm on it like... I loved HopeCon, but I'm pretty sure we probably rolled down for Dark Day Dawning because, you know... They also had the only website for Philadelphia Hardcore. Yes, there you go. CJB.net or whatever the fuck it was. I can't even remember this I just remember someone being like, yo, there's this Philadelphia Hardcore band called Dark Day Dawning. I'm like, who the fuck is that? (laughs) Like, wait, how the fuck... Me and Mike Brown were like, how the fuck they get a website? <laughs> we thought it was like outer space. We're like, wait, what the fuck is going on? This band we don't even know has a website. What the fuck are we doing? Yeah, that existed before because I know you guys had the guest book because I would watch all the shenanigans on that. I would just be in computer class, just going on your guys' guest book and Dysphoria's thing because Dysphoria had links to every band on earth. So I'll just fucking go to their shit and just write every single thing that looked cool down. Oh. So yeah, I don't remember if that was the same time or not. So because you're cognizant of all the different stuff, um, there was an impetus to play. And so what made what made From Rama be like this is the goal? I I literally don't even know, but you know, I went to some shows there. Like I went to when horror show started, I tried to go to all the shows there. The thing that stuck with Fun Rama was because you know it was, it was near uh, the train station, which was cool. But you know, I'd take the train down by myself. And just be lost wandering around looking for the fucking thing because I had no idea what the hell anything was. Um, but I just I like the vibe there. I like the how how you know um, close together everything was down there. You know people diving off the washing machine and all that. So to me that was like just the coolest, most like punk spot that a band could play. And uh, so yeah, the thing that sucked was you know you go to show would start whatever time, and the last train back to Doyle sounds like eleven thirty five. So I would miss. Pretty much every time a headliner would play, I'd fucking miss it. Cause actually Drew would drive down. He had a license, but he he lived down the street from me and he would refuse to take me home. He's like, find your own way home. So I would have to leave the show early, take the train home just to make sure I actually got a ride back. Brutal. So I definitely <laughs> I definitely missed out on some cool shit there. But yeah, I just I I like the vibe of the spot a lot. And then to me, that was like 
you know, when, when those old flyers that, you know, we've been recreating lately, uh, would come out, you know, with all the fucking show listed on it and all that stuff. Like I was like, damn, I, I mean, striking distance plays here, fucking all these bands play here. I need to fucking play here. Now, when you guys are playing these birthday shows and shit, um, what is the vibe? Like, we're just out here to be assholes. Like, were you guys hoping that eventually it would catch on? Like, what was the mindset going into the early letdown days? We just, we didn't like anything that was really going on out in the burbs. Like, you know, we liked the actual, you know, death threat strike distance, fucking no justice, fucking all those kind of bands. And then nothing around us was really doing that. And, you know, we had our group of friends. I was into cool shit. And then us. So we would just go for whatever reason, like a girl would be like, oh, I'm having a birthday show. Like you should play with these other bands that cover Under Oath and stuff. And I'd be like, all right, well, if you want us to play, that's fine. But, and then, uh, so it would just be chaotic every fucking time. And then people just wrecking shit. And uh, we didn't really have any, you know, any goals as a band. Like, you know, we didn't think anybody would ever give a fuck. We didn't think we'd ever leave Doylestown. So we just tried to to cause as much damage as possible. Like we somehow got onto Doyle Sound Day, which is when they had bands play in the middle of town. So we're like, oh yeah, we have like a rock band. Can we play? And uh, we covered "I Hate You." We covered "Cram" <laughs> to like open the set, and literally <laughs> just as so awesome. we played, we played in like this fucking parking lot behind where Siren would eventually be, and our friends are just going, you know, moshing on people and shit, and then the, the organizer was so pissed off was like fuck stop 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 what the fuck you, like stop doing that and then uh so it's just after that they stopped letting bands play i think obviously because <laughs> they didn't didn't expect people to just be like fuck your drugs just like loud as fuck in the middle of town you know what i mean so just like shit like that just because we thought it was funny and we just wanted to you know you've been to doyle's town it's like fucking pleasantville so anytime you can shake shit up and and kind of bring some mayhem to it and make it any kind of entertaining beyond the the normal shit that was going on there. We just, we, you know, we just tried to fuck up as many things as possible. Honestly. When did you build that bridge to Boyertown? <laughs> That's I, I didn't even know, you know, cause Reading had like the silo, I guess. Yeah. And, um, that was, it's so crazy thinking about because we had our shit. Lanzo had their own shit. Phoenixville and Trap had their own shit. And then Reading, I guess, slash Boyer. I'd never even heard of Boyertown until I met those kids. Until probably Agitator started. And, uh, yeah, I don't even know. Like, I put Agitator on a show kind of early on. Um, just because I was psyched that, you know, I knew the kids because they would always be at letdown shows and stuff like Andrew and Marty and all them. But, yeah, I straight up, I, I had heard of Reading. I didn't know anything about their scene or what shows happened there or anything like that. And then until literally... You know, 2009 probably was the first time I even heard about what the fuck Boyertown was. Now, what was the first time you guys like linked up and like, okay, we're all going to be boys? Like, how did that, how did they, like the legit, like who was it and like what was it? Honestly, I think Justin was, was friends with them before me for sure. Um, cause you know, I, people shockingly weren't really, uh, trying to bro down with me or trying to hit me up to hang out or, you know, be my boy or whatever. And um, so he started playing, uh, probably playing Magic or something like that with Marty, something ridiculous. But uh, just from going to shows and, you know, probably when Agitator started and then just meeting them through that, um, we didn't become like actual good friends until, I, I want to say probably 2010 or 2011, probably. Like we, we were friends, but not like we are now. You know what I mean? Okay. So 
for you guys, obviously, the irony is that you guys were like the agitators of that world. And I remember early on people, Robbie basically describing me, you guys as like young asshole straight edge kids. And I was like, oh, this sounds great. I love it. (laughs) And like, you know, um, I don't fucking remember what show it was, but there was a certain show you ended up playing and you were like, hey, and I'm going to fuck up the paraphrasing. So anyone who wants to get semantic, suck my dick. Uh, It was something like, hey, uh, heard some kids died uh, died from uh, in a car accident. Hey, don't fucking drink and drive. Something like that. And I was just, and I was just like, me and Mick, because Mick Henry is always on the other side of the stage. Me and Mick Henry looked, you know, like Jesus Christ, these fucking kids. <laughs> and you know, Mick Henry after he's like, dude, you fucking hear what that kid said? I'm like, yeah, man, they're fucking crazy. <laughs> but that was the thing is, is early on as you guys started playing more Philly shows, I was early aware that if, if we weren't there, someone was going to try to fuck you guys up or get start some shit. So made it a point, not only just because it was awesome and it was like good to see much like how we talk about, like sometimes everything goes too much in one way. Letdown was a breath of fresh air and a complete deviation from what was very fucking popular. Like I always call it the Hellfest sound. It's like the fucking goulash mm. of like you brought up under oath. I hate the term metalcore. There's no core. It's just like fucking metal for suburb nerds who don't want to listen to Van Halen. And um, <laughs> it, it was all that bullshit. And all that tight pant bullshit and all that goof goofball shit that has nothing to do with shit. But since the DIY shows is a breeding ground for that, that's kind of got stuck. So seeing you guys at that stage kind of being those assholes on them on them shows really was awesome. Yeah, that's what I mean, especially like, you know, around us, we kind of like there was some kind of scene, but it was very infrequent. And, you know, there's no actual, you know, cohesion around anything. So we kind of just had to make do with what we had. And then kids definitely kind of started to follow suit. Cause they're like, Oh damn, we can like do this shit. And like, we can jump off shit and throw shit and fucking go side to side. And it's like, you know, actually like a fun hardcore show. And, you know, so we would play with, 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 like I said, like the metalcore kind of shit. And we would just bully them relentlessly. Like I would just be talking shit the whole time. And then eventually those kids dropped the bullshit they were into. And then, you know, got into like, you know, bones brigade, like that, you know, just like actual things that we were fucking with at the time. And then like, you know, all those kids under us like kind of came up because they started as a band we would play with and we're like, damn, this is actually much more entertaining than the people we're friends with and the shit that we're playing. And, you know, so that was, that was cool to see happen. Now, um, I know we're we're now out of sync. I, I had to know you were definitely at Lenape Middle School for that big show, right? What, the June 1st Yeah, one? that big show was like everybody. In- and all that. How was that? Because I think it's relative to things that we'll talk about later. How was that being able to see, and for those listening, let it be middle school, Bob Meadows from a life once lost did this show where it was headlining. Fuck. I don't remember who the fuck headlined. Was it a N it was a N it's supposed to be supposed to be converged, but I still don't know if that was actually ever a thing. Um, a N and it was the first time champion played out this way. Um, mm. Shattered Realm was also on the bill. I wasn't singing for them at the time. Stickman was wearing head to toe all white. He was uh, wearing a wife beater and white shorts. 
and he moshed one time. And this is a gymnasium or like lunchroom of a high school in the fucking truest parts of the most suburb, suburb thing possible. And Stickman just comes out of nowhere, literally at all white, full gear and gives one hard mosh and the whole show goes i don't want nothing like everybody collectively is like all right fuck this <laughs> because i had never i had always seen him you know i loved fucking fury five early on and so i'd only ever seen him in the the inserts of the cd and pictures online and shit so he was standing behind the band i was like dude that guy is jacked as fuck he's like he's just wearing sunglasses i can't tell what the fuck he's looking at he looks crazy I was like, I'm pretty sure it's Stickman. And people were like, nah, nah, why the fuck would that be Stickman? And then the last Shadow Realm song, yeah, he literally cleared the entire fucking venue. Like, people were, I heard some literally, some kid literally scream and run towards the door. And that, that shit fucking sticks out to me because that was one of the most insane things I've ever seen in a show. I, I, I really can't stress to you because um, Horror Show played in Josh Sherlig, who's dead, RIP, who played guitar in Horror Show. He's like, yo, yo, come over, come over here. After that set, somehow Stickman had pizza delivered. And he takes his pizza and he sits it on the hood of his car. And we're all watching. We're like, what the fuck is he gonna do? And we're like a net we're like, we're obsessed, like like literally like a like a like a nature show, watching what Stickman's gonna do with this pizza. <laughs> and he lifts the box up by himself. Mind you, it's a giant pizza, but he's by himself, like no one's gonna get my pizza. And he takes both his hands. And he pulls the smell into his face and just like, <laughs> and we are like, all right, well, that's how Stickman eats pizza. He has to waft the smell in. And to this day, I do that every time we open box. Like, ah, let's get a, let's get a, let's go full Stickman here. Let's get a full smell of this pizza. <laughs> and I said that to him and he was like, yeah, I probably did. <laughs> yeah. I probably did. <laughs> it was fucking great. But, why it's pointed to the story is that like here was a big show in your backyard put on at like this low at the lowest level you get. It's a fucking school gym. Um, Knives out horror show. I mean, if you were a band of any kind of importance, minus punishment, because we didn't have a lineup at the time. <laughs> I mean, dude, covering up. Yeah. Like everybody fucking played. And that was like the important factor. I think I like kind of put some things into your head later on, because I'm glad you were at that show. So, um, I don't know how much we're going to get into the weeds of this. Cause I think, it, but it'd be kind of fun. So at some point you became the young straight edge Turk, like the young Turks of straight edge in Philadelphia. And you got under Robbie's radar. So kind of run down like the beginning of you and Robbie, uh, friendship, getting to know each other, blah, 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 blah. Um. Yeah. Obviously, you know, when I was younger, you know, I would see all the shows he would do, and he had his own fucking venue. And then I saw him trade pizza for entry into a show, and just everything about him, I was like, hey, you know, this dude's pretty fucking sick. And um, so when you know we started, and I remember we put up the demo, and he actually responded to it, and he's like, "Yo, this is fucking awesome." And we were like, "Holy shit, dude!" Like, yeah, like that that old head from Philly, who you know, we all love Dead by Twenty Three. And we knew the things that he had done in the past and all that shit. And then uh, we were we were like, all right, well, that's pretty cool. Like this this dude actually gets, you know, because nobody around us really fucking got it. And we were still a pretty terrible band at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I liked playing live, but, you know, I was like, nobody's going to fucking care about this shit. 
And then, so he posted that and we're like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then Bold was actually playing a reunion in Philly. Ha ha. <laughs> and, and, and we were like, fuck, dude. Like, I think probably Justin or somebody got messaged him was like, yo, like, you know, if you need an opener, obviously we're the only straight edge band around probably. And, you know, it would, it would be awesome. And he's like, I don't know, like maybe, like blah, blah, blah. And we're like, if this motherfucker doesn't put us on this shit and just put some whack shit instead, it's going to be literally offensive. And, um, so he ended up, he ended up, he's like, yeah, I was just fucking with you. Yeah, of course. I love you guys to play. So we played and it was like, yeah, us, Bones Brigade and them. And, you know, the show it was, was whatever, but yeah, it was, it was whack. I was, I was trying to be nice. It was whack. It was fucking terrible. I remember showing up to the venue and, and TC3 was sound checking and just in an empty church, just literally going ham for like an yes. hour. And I was like, I was like. I mean, he's one of my favorite guitar players ever, but this is just fucck up. Like, I don't know what the hell I'm watching right now. I remember we were trying to play and, Dice uh, in the back of the room, and he was so fucking loud, we had to take it outside. <laughs> Dude, it was, yeah, it was literally like fucking ear-shattering <laughs> shit. And I was like, this is going to be a long fucking day, man. And um, so we played, and literally as soon as we were done playing, Red Cheeks was like, yo, like, I want you to do a record on Dead Boy 23. And we were like, because when, when we started, we would always fuck around. Like, you know, we put our, we did our demo. And we sent our demo out to, we had a giant list of every label we loved. You know, like Dead Alive, My War, Young Blood. Hey, Sean, you fucked up, Sean. <laughs> you listen, and I know you listen. Fuck. You fucked up, Sean. <laughs> I remember I gave one to Matt Summers at the Direct Control show, actually, at the church. And I was like, yo, man, we're like a younger, straightish band from around here. You know, we'd love to put a record out of you. And he definitely could not have looked less interested. And I remember being so bummed. And uh, but like now I'm just like, yeah, I would probably have done the same thing if I was in probably just throwing it in the fucking street. But um, so yeah, like we, you know, nobody wants to do it. And then that's why we ended up doing the double decker record first. But uh, so we're just like, fuck, man, it would be so sick if Robbie would like resurrect Dead by 23 and like we could do a record on the label. That'd be fuck, you know, because we loved Frostbite. We loved, you know, pretty much everything that he put out. And uh and that's when he when he said that we're like holy fuck like that actually happened somehow, and uh, so that, that that started the friendship. You know, we would go down. I think he lived in Lansdowne at the time. Yeah, he lived um, out. Um, he, yeah, he lived right outside of uh, Drexel Hill in Lansdowne. Yeah, and like that would like to me that I was like fuck man we got to go all the way there and like like in retrospect it was probably like a thirty five minute drive for us but that was like the first time he's like yo go to O Street and pick up Santucci's and bring it to me. So we would do that and just go hang out wait, in the spot wait, wait, wait. with so sausage. Wait, you with the Diddy? With the P Diddy? <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Reggie's you Robbie Reggie thinks he's smoking P Diddy out here, breast milking you. <laughs> <laughs> that motherfucker. He did ask us to do that. So, you know, so we would just spend a lot of time hanging out there, um, just talking shit, hearing hearing old stories. Which is like, you know, when you're, we, I always loved that shit growing up. Like we didn't have a lot of old heads around, obviously. Like we had Mark Bebus who would tell us cool shit. And, uh, that was basically about it. Like nobody else is into cool shit from around us really that we knew. So hearing actual, allegedly old cool shit, you know, at the time we we're like, holy fuck. You know what I mean? Just kind of trying to take in as much as possible whenever he would talk to us. I mean, that's the cool thing about being young is the minute that you get, the smallest level of attention or acknowledgement, it, it's not a bad thing. And I think every young kid had that moment where like the guy, like that guy became, you know, like interested. You're like, holy fuck, this is cool. Like there's a level of acceptance, but yeah, was let down 
at any stage really thinking about tours and shit? Or were you guys like, it seems like you were just like barely able to even get people to book you sometimes. So the bigger picture wasn't even in a game plan at that point, right? No, like, I mean, yeah, like I said, early on, like, Drew would hit people up and be like, yo, if you ever need a band in Richmond or, you know, like Boston or whatever, like he would hit people up and very rarely would get responses. And, um, but, you know, we, we did, you know, if we got to go play Richmond with 86 mentality and waste of time, uh, you know, they asked us to come down for like, we actually got on that show and then we did like a weekend up to Boston. Um, and, and just like weird shit like that, but it was nothing, nothing that made any sense really ever. And then, uh, probably winter, like 2005, we started trying to like book weekends and pretty much when it, cause Kimball was still in 10th grade, I think. So anytime he'd have, have off from school, you know, spring break or winter break or summer, we would try to go as far as possible um, in, in the time frame that we had, you know, whatever fucking a week and a half, whatever the hell it was. Now I'm thinking about where, where do you think the first beginning of a pop that goes beyond just a local Philly band, Burbs band thing happened for you? Um, fuck, that's kind of hard. Uh, I mean, we played so many just terrible shows where nobody gave a fuck. And uh, outside of shows where like our friends will roll out, like honestly, the bold Ooh, show. You know what? We should you know, touch we'll on just, that because uh, that's important. That? So I'll set the stage. Letdown's playing. Bob is shirtless. He looks like a starved <laughs> child from a third world country, yet he has Austin Powers chest hair. Um, <laughs> everybody in the band is skinny and young. And the minute they fucking play, there's a gaggle of kids who all look like they were just out on a recess going fucking bananas for this band. And it was like one of my favorite things to be like, let's see all these young assholes go crazy. <laughs> like the entertainment <laughs> factor, because it was like, I mean, we were fully ganged up at the time. So we're just like, look at these fucking young assholes. But I really love that even at the earliest stage, you know, like you were surrounded by kids that were your homies, you know, repping and putting on for you. Yeah, that's what, you know, we always try to do. Like, I feel like any young band should do. Like, your friends should roll with you. You should put on for them. You know, um, you know they didn't do it for any weird dick riding shit or, you know, to be cool or whatever. It's like, yo, we want to, like, show people what's up. And then, you know, it was just definitely funny because it wasn't anybody scary in our entire squad. It was just all just, like, actual, like, children for the most part. And uh, at, yeah, uh, super early on, we played Allentown at this place, Pirates Cove, uh, with Municipal Waste in like a basement. And so we brought our usual squad of kids and there was a 14 year old with us, this kid cold that ended up dying the year after, but he was like, you know, five foot three, 108 pounds and just moshing for us when we're playing. And afterwards, the kid who booked the show was like, Hey man, you know, I'm really glad you guys came up and you know, we'll have you back again. But next time leave your jock asshole friends at home. And it's like a grown <laughs> fucking thing. You know, it's probably 26 at the time. Mustache, like, not, not a really tight shorts cut yeah. off. Literally, I was like, can you point out who you're talking to exactly? Or are you talking about exactly? And he points to the kid. I was like, dude, he's 14. Like if you got deep by an eighth grader, I got nothing for you, man. Like you are a bitch made, like get the fuck out of my face. Like, it was shocking. We were not invited back to that venue, but it was just like, so this funny. also shows me early on that despite how much you fuck with the DIY spaces, the DIY world fucking hates you. 
I love them. They hate me. It's <laughs> like the most fucked up abusive relationship yeah. on like, earth. Like, I like everything you do. I love all the bands you love. I, I'm, I'm sorry I fucking like Madball. You know what I mean? I don't know what the hell to tell you, man. Yeah, it's it's legitimately one of these things about Bob that needs to be it, – It's this is a guy who if he could book a show in a hollowed out tree somewhere, he would do it. And I'd be like, dude, why the fuck are you doing a show here? And that's our constant conversation. Like, nah, miss me with that bullshit. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to that fucking show. Let me know how yeah. that shit goes. Call and me there's always some that. shit. And I'm like, see, I told you. I told you it was going to be some bullshit. <laughs> that's great. So, um, yeah, so Letdown starts rolling out uh, more places. The fans are behind, like, your friends are behind you. And then, you know, what do you think made you pop beyond just your people being around you? I don't, honestly, I think. Being on t- Dead by 23 definitely made at least some people pay attention. And then really early on, you know, one, one of the, the real actual inspirations for FYA lineup-wise and vibe-wise was This Is For You Fest in Florida. And, you know, I always loved what he did with the fest. You know, it'd be like DV bands with, you know, mosh bands with, you know, just youth crew bands and all that. So we were trying to book a tour. And then we literally just went to, I think 1UP had toured the previous winter or summer. And we looked at all their contacts and just some of them had emails and stuff like that or phone numbers. So we just hit up, we just like, Hey, do you still do shows? Anybody that does shows, we're trying to come through, you know, we're, we're doing a record of dead boy 23 or from Philly, whatever. And, um, so yeah, so we ended up getting a hold of Billy who did this is for you. And he asked us to play and that set, honestly, like nobody knew who the fuck we were, but literally like the first song, I think fucking, I, I, I don't remember what the fuck happened. I think I like knocked over a PA speaker or threw the mic into the back of the room or something stupid. And the set was just fucking insane. So I think that kind of put us on the mat to some people. Um, and then we played Birmingham a couple of days later. And then you guys played that place. That was the what first was time. that? Uh, the cave. So this is, we played at this CD. Record oh, okay. Store the record this time, store. But yeah. And then we played uh cave yeah, nine yeah. after that, which is still one of the favorite venues. So, seriously. Um, like a hidden treasure. Yeah. Like Mike Parsons did so many good shows over the years and he still gives a fuck. And then he would, especially after, you know, we didn't know it. We're like, ah, fucking Birmingham, Alabama. And then we did, it was the only show we actually like sold merch and fucking people are going off the whole time. And then there's kids and, you know, like fucking like damaged shirts or whatever, whatever, you know, just like actually into shit that we were into. And we're like, what, how the fuck do we have to drive 20 hours to find people who are into the same? So seven people moshed hard for us in Birmingham. We did the tour at ringworm, but when ringworm played anything from the promise, there was the hardest skank parts and like dudes are out on the floor. (laughs) And I'm like, well, we know what uh, Alabama hardcore is about. They love the OG shit. And it was cool as fuck because it wasn't bearded dudes. It was like, it was young. It was young people, man. They were really into that sound. So that's cool yeah. as fuck. Yeah, they. I mean, still to this day, probably I wouldn't be surprised for the same kids that we we became friends with because kids ended up being in the band Legion. Um, this kid Kahan and and all these other kids, like they were always they always loved Ringworm and Integrity and and all that shit. So I, I wouldn't be surprised with those kids. So that was kind of the first fire under your balls. It wasn't local to go ahead. Um, to go ahead and really do more because you saw some some promise in it, and that was uh, end of two thousand five. We talked at the beginning of two thousand six. That was I might be getting my times with stuff, but I'm almost positive that was winter 
like January 2005, I think, is when we uh, started. Yeah, that's what I thought because, shit. yeah, that would have to be about that time because it was past the bold show. I also, you know, because I know you're saying, I think hardcore shifted some. Um, you guys were just at the end of the posi nom- numbers moment. And I don't, you guys never mm-hmm. even got to play it, right? Unless I'm mistaken. No, we, the, the record was going to come out in 2005. And I remember Red Cheeks allegedly tried to get us on. And they're like, oh, man, we're all full. And I meant we were like so fucking bummed because I was Robbie, like, Robbie had no juice. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no doubt in my mind. They're like, I don't know who this is. Please delete my number. <laughs> Poor Robbie. Um, so, well, why I bring them up is there was a little bit of a, like, a, like we talk about it often on the show. It's like there was a planting of seeds and a germination period and the fruition of that was a lot of people who came in like 06, 07 who really started fucking with faster bands again and kind of like plowed the road that was like laid in the Hellfest era of that entire sound. Like I felt like uh, 04, 05 was a little rough for the OG shit. And then all of a sudden it was like, boom, 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 you know, like, and I'm not going to say the B9 board didn't have its fucking moments too. But I think that mm. you guys were starting to pop at a time when people finally started figuring out that the fast shit was cool, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, at the time, like, I remember we were like, dude, there is no no good fast band right now. This shit fucking sucks. So, like, we would start going to, we got really into, like, the No Way Records kind of shit. And honestly, at that point, you know, we, we I can't remember how the hell we even linked up with them, but us and Trash Talk became friends. And we kind of looked at them as the West Coast non-straight edge us. Like they're into the same shit and they just, they like just causing, you know, mayhem at shows and all that. And then so that was actually a band early on that uh, we kind of became friendly with. And one of the few bands that we actually felt like we kind of made sense with on the bill. You know what I mean? No, early on, I, I you know, you couldn't be more right. You know, the, um, between the, the mannerisms on stage, the antics, you know, I definitely think that you were dead on with that. So Let's run through it You start getting a little out there Where do you go? Who's the first person to hit you up That you didn't expect To book you guys And that wasn't just like an, You asking them But some people start reaching out to you I don't even fucking it, It's It really didn't happen that much Honestly Nobody's really clamoring us Claiming for us to come play Their fucking city or whatever It was just you know, us still hitting people up being like, yeah, we're booking a weekend or booking a tour, you know, and then, you know, when we would hit them up, they'll be down for it. Like, oh yeah, shit, you know, we, we'd love to have you. But, you know, I don't even remember a time when people reaching out to us, like, yo, we got to have you guys on this shit. Like, recently with, with This Is Hardcore and you, that was probably the first time that, you know, I don't even know who you talked to at first about it or anything like that. I, I don't think we hit you up about it, but, you know, at you asking us to play, you know, the very first one, we're like, holy fuck. You know what I mean? We got to roll super deep for this shit. And, you know, you guys sure fucking wrecked it. Up. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that I'm not going to cap you guys up on this, but like, I love it, man. And I mean, we're going to get into this right now. Like, um, this, this, this things that we do with these fests. Yeah. These bands that we pay a lot of money to and the people that travel from so far. Yeah, man, sure. Come to our city, but it, I I've I've said this to you a million times. It's there's a glory when a Philly band 
or you know, and now we've extended the region due to your um, influence, which we'll get into as well. But like when our bands get that response out of this is hardcore, that's like the fucking win. You know, like there's all mm-hmm. these bands from every other fucking cities, Boston, New York, and you know, blah blah blah. But when a, one of our like home team bands gets out there and gets it, it's the proudest moment. Like, yeah, fuck yeah, you're gonna see it. You're gonna see a band that you don't know about get it. And we talked about that in the last episode about the blistered and the three knee deep and shit. So that makes me happy that the 2006, this is hardcore helped the letdown out, you know? That's what, yeah. I mean, like, cause that's something. So I only got to go to one positive numbers, which is Oh four. And I wanted to go, I think I found out about like 2002 probably. And every fucking year I was just too broke to fucking go, including the last one. So, you know, and this is hardcore got announced, you know, you posted that it was happening and I was like, fuck, I was like, I need to go to this shit. I got to figure out how to fucking go. I was like, you know, it's in Philly. I know Joe's going to do something crazy with it, you know, so just even getting to play and, you know, not having to worry about not being able to afford, you know, going to something that cool, you know, it was just, we were psyched just because of that, not to be, uh, oh man, you know, so thankful, but you know, we, it was really appreciated. And then, you know, I'm glad that we were able to, to play and all our friends could roll out and, yeah, that, I remember that that fucking year is fucking insane. So, I mean, that's the cool shit to me. I don't know where that sits with you, but like early on, letdown had a place in a place in this is hardcore. You know, like you guys played over trash talk <laughs> the year that they played the first year. You know, you guys are right no. in the middle of the bill. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think you guys played earlier on the Saturday, if I remember. Of the first year, I'm trying to think of. Yeah, first, yeah. You guys yeah. played early on the, you guys played earlier on the Saturday, and it was fucking a, a six set. So like, going into the second time, I'm like, dude, these motherfuckers and their friends fucking wrecked it. I gotta put them up, and and you guys delivered again. It was like Jesus fucking Christ, man. Like, you know, like obviously, you know, you know from we talked about it in the last episode, local band starts you know, hit, hitting it, you know, you don't, you don't ignore it and go, Oh yeah, I got to put you earlier. Fuck that. You know, like you guys, you guys were the like middle of the bill on the Sunday, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm the one year you put us like fifth to fucking last and we're like, dude, what the fuck? Like, this is. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I was just like, this motherfucker's, yeah, I guess he hates me now and he's trying to set us up for failure and make us look like fucking assholes. But you know, t- that definitely, something that I obviously took notice of and I'm trying to do myself. is like, you were trying to put over the young band and be like, and people were like, Oh fuck. Like they're, they're big enough for, you know, in that specific spot to, to necessitate, you know, playing there. So just like little shit like that. We're like, God damn man. You know, so that, that always like helped us out a lot. So obviously at some point letdown gets a little bit out there enough that, that when does the Europe happen? When did that even come into mind? Like, maybe we'll do Europe now that we're playing. Like, like, how does all that start coming to be where it's more than just playing locally, playing in the East Coast, going down to trips? You know, like, when does you you become a bigger than just a regional band? So I'll, I'll say straight up, Europe was never even a thought in my head. You know what I mean? Like, I was never like, fuck, we've done so much. But by that point, you know, we had done two full U.S.'s a bunch of, you know, East coast runs down to Florida and wherever else we had done Canada, we had done Mexico. Um, yeah. And the first time we went to Cali, actually, we played with iron age in Texas 
and became friends with those guys. And then they're like, oh, what are you guys playing out for this? They're like, oh, we have like one Cali show. So I guess we're going to go out to it and like give us a little bit. And then so they got us on New Mexico, like three Cali shows and Seattle or Tacoma, I think it was. And then, which was, you know, they didn't fucking need to do that. They didn't know us from anything, you know, but, but they just, you know, I think probably because we were fucking losing our shit to their band and, you know, we met them and actually became friends with them. And then, so we got to play a bunch of crazy California shows and, uh, you know, we, it was the worst tour ever because we had one show planned back from Washington, which was in Iowa. And then we drove to the wrong city altogether. Whoa, whoa, so we whoa, had a nice, whoa. like, what? <laughs> So we, when, I don't fucking know, man, whatever stupid tour routing this was, our last show was in Washington and they're like, oh, well, I was like kind of like in the middle. We'll just hit that and then drive home. And I guess there's two towns, the same, two towns, the same name in Iowa or something like that, or we just read it wrong. <laughs> we showed up four hours to the wrong fucking place and we're like, well, I guess we're not fucking playing that show. So we ended up just doing Washington to Doylestown was, you know, like fucking whatever, four, three days, whatever fuck how much it was. Ran out of money on the way back, begged for money outside of a fucking gas station. People got mad at me because I wasn't throwing up any of my own money. And I said, I don't have money. You know, like, get some out of your account. I said, I don't have a bank account. So that's not happening. Yeah, like, uh, uh, what is this yeah. account you're talking about? <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't know what you want me to do. I have zero dollars. I started the tour with like four dollars. I don't fucking know, man. Should we, so, should we yeah, break just, down the fact that, and this is the thing that really always not only endeared me to you, but I, I related heavily. Like there, yeah, you, you, you lived in the suburbs, but you were not no silver spoon and you were not someone who had that money in the uh, money in the bank account every week while you're on tour. Like some bands that we toured with when we shot at Rome, you know, um, it was the passion and the fact that what else are you going to do? You're fucking dead broke anyway. You're going to sit home dead broke in Philly. You're going to sit home. You're going to be on tour being dead broke somewhere else, you know? And unfortunately for you, you also managed a tour with some people who came from a little bit better background. So they couldn't really understand the idea of what no money means. I mean, the, the thing with us is, you know, they, they all had, you know, came from good homes and all that shit. And then but we were all like just fucking assholes. maniacs. In one way. Yeah, like, like being dick all us together like straight up so what year did i um, what year did yeah, i slap or yell at drew outside oh of this hardcore God, dude. 2011 i want to say because i was i was at home i left the fest and you called me like get your fucking friend out of this fucking parking lot right now and i was like the fuck are you talking about man he's like drew's just sitting here i told him to leave he won't fucking leave you got to do something so i like frantically called and texted i was like dude go home what are you doing just hanging out there and then, uh, yeah, I guess at some point you you removed him yourself, but <laughs> which is shame because I fucking <laughs> love that kid. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> That's what, like, but again, like you know, we were we were all assholes, but we were all assholes to each other too. So it's always fucking volatile. But you know, I mean, like growing up in the burbs where I did, like you know, I like all, most of my friends have money, most people have money, so that probably made me feel a certain way. They couldn't relate to, you know, in in uh whatever fucking year that was. My dad moved back to Fishtown and on Burks and Gerard, and I would walk with him to fucking cash his fucking, you know, welfare check across the street at Wilson's check cashing. And you know what I mean? All that shit. Like they can't you can't just sit there and explain that to somebody 
you know what I'm talking about? So like, it was just, it always kind of, it was like a, a weird thing with me and, and all them, you know what I mean? Yeah. They don't, they're not privy to it. They're not, they're going to have a hard time acknowledging it, you know, specifically it's going to be really hard. And I, I imagine that probably put some, some, not, um, not miles between you, but definitely put some, some, some shit that made it hard at times like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So you get back from the tour and what happens? I I don't remember what the fuck tour that was, but I guess going back Europe. to Europe. the Europe thing, which there's no question, which I completely went off the rails on. Um, so at that point, we had done the Dead by Twenty Three Seven Inch um, in, uh, in fourteen thousand colors and forty eight different cover iterations. Coolest looking looking record cover, and a lot of hours spent watching Red Cheeks fucking do all that shit. But in retrospect, it's like what the fuck, man. Um, so I guess at that point, Sausage just started six feet under and Robbie was kind of over. I think he was definitely burnt after doing our record, understandably, because it was like many man hours. And um, so Dave was like, yo, I'm doing your next seven inch. Like, okay, cool. So we did the Sacrifice Me seven inch. And then, so we're gearing up for an LP. Like we were trying to record the LP. And he's like, all right, when this is out, you guys are going to go to Europe. Like my friend's going to book your tour. And I was like, I don't know if that's a good idea, man. And he was just like, <laughs> he's like, no, like, what, what was, you know, you what have, was the, uh, what was the impetus of saying that? <laughs> I was just like, look, dude, like we've done three, seven inches at this point. We, we have our own thing, you know, we have done all these other things, but like, I feel like that's like a pretty big step. And I don't really know if we have the people over there that are going to give a fuck enough. And he's like, no, no, it'll be sick. I promise. And I was like, well, I guess, you know, why would he not know better than me? I was like, yeah, of course. So I was like, yeah, if, if you think this would do well, then I fucking trust you. So he put us in touch with the dipshit that does coalition records who was down to uh, book the tour. And uh, yeah, that just started the fucking, the hellscape that it became. Give me the short, give me, don't give me the short, short rundown, but give me a little bit of the shorter rundown of it. 35 days. I blew my voice out literally the first day. Um, We were booked as more of a like a punk thing more than a hardcore thing which is you know we can we could have kind of floated between both but i would have rather played with you know the justices and you know the the vogue and dead stops of the world true colors whatever all that shit than the 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 squat punk kind of stuff or you know the the fucking the diy Molotov cocktail zine kind of bands like we just didn't really fit in with a lot of a lot of the shows that we were on um, halfway through the tour, we were selling so poor because you know we hit so we put up thirty five hundred dollars. We had somehow amassed that much money as a band over the course of being a band. So we spent all that on flights over there. So that was thirty five hundred dollars gone. And then the deal was when we went over there, we would just pay him back everything for you know driving us and doing shows and all the other shit. And halfway through the tour, we realized there's no fucking way in hell we were making enough money to pay him back all the money that we owed him. Oh shit! So he, he pulled us over. And he pulled over and he's like, you know, and this is after, you know, like the first fucking show, this woman was yelling at me drunk as fuck in the front. And then I went on like a crazy rant in between songs about like, yo, like just cause you're drunk doesn't mean you can fucking, you know, yell at me, like get the fuck out of my face, whatever, all this shit. And then there's just like a dead silence for like 10 seconds. And then the dude in the back of the room just goes, what? And so nobody understood what the fuck I was talking about. So it was just nobody every show is pretty much you know getting some confrontation with people or people weren't feeling it or whatever 
So he pulls us aside and he's like, yo, listen, you have 17 days left of this tour. You are not going to make enough money to pay me back. And, and the thing too was in Europe, if you don't pay the guarantee, that dude's not going to go through you next time. And he's going to tell all his friends not to go through you. So, you know, we'd have fucking 15 people at the show, but they would have to pay us, you know, whatever, fucking 250, 300 euros. And that was just going right to him. We didn't get a fucking cent of that, obviously. So he was like bullying all these promoters and then, you know, making us look like at like greedy fucking oh, assholes. Let me break this down. Like that, so he was getting the guarantees, mm-hmm. but then he was making you guys look bad. Yeah, he was like, you know, they need the money. So, you know, this is this Yeah, is these their stupid money. Americans need this money. I would just do it for yeah. free because I love you. <laughs> literally, literally, just like something like that. He's like, if you don't pay us this, then I'm going to tell every band not to come through your town. Maron. All this shit. And, you know, and we had no idea that was even fucking happening. And then, so it just made us look like fucking scumbags. And then, so, you know, at this point, you know, we're not selling any merch. It's fucking just dismal. And he's like, you know, I think you guys should just pack it up and go home. Like, you're not going to make enough money, so we're just wasting our time here. And we're like, the fuck are you talking about, man? He's like, yeah, just, I think we should just post online that you got robbed in, you know, whatever fucking city we were in. And, you know, you had to fly home because you had no belongings and, you know, put up, like, whatever version of GoFundMe existed in 2008. And just, that's how you will repay me. And we're like, no, nah, man, that's kind of, like, the most fucked up shit I've ever heard in my life. Like, we're not fucking doing that. Like, no. And then... He's like, well, then your other option is we finish the tour and whatever you don't make, you owe me at the end of the tour. Like, okay, fine. Let's just do that. Cause like, we're not bitching up and just fucking putting our tails between our legs and going home. So we finished the fucking tour and I playing a cool couple cool shows, like negative approach. I remember we played with and that was sick, but you know, the last day comes and he's like, all right, it's time to settle up. I'm like, well, how much do we owe you still? And it was some fucking outlandish amount of money. And we're like, yo, man, we don't have that. Like, I don't know why the fuck you, you've seen what we've done this whole tour. And he's just like, well, call mommy and daddy and ask them for money. And I was like, I don't know who the fuck you're talking to, pussy, but <laughs> no. Like, hey, no, I don't, if, I don't even think my dad had a bank account. Like, literally, I don't, I don't remember him having a debit card. I just remember him getting paid in cash every fucking week. And I didn't even tell him I was going to Europe. I fucking left a note saying, be back in like a month and a half, basically. And uh, so I was like, I, I know you're not talking to me with this shit. And then, you know, everybody else is like, yeah, I'm not asking my parents for money to pay you, dude. So you tried to make them go to ATM. They wouldn't do it. And uh, it became like a whole fucking thing. And then it ended up with us being like, oh, yeah, we'll just, we'll send you money when we get home. And he's just like, all right, you better. We're like, yeah, man, yeah, for sure. As soon as we get home, we got you. So drive us off the airport, get home, ask us for money. We just fucking ignore him. He blows up people at telling us, telling them we owe him money, whatever. And we just... Never paid the motherfucker for obvious reasons. So obviously all that put a sour taste in my mouth, and that's why all that shit got said. I mean, especially then, this is like, this is still pre all the Euro, right? This is like right before the Euro's a whole thing? I believe so, yeah. yeah. So like, he might hit you up and say, hey, I need X amount of blah, blah, blah. I remember Zlotties were like 2,000, Zlotties was a hoodie. The fuck am I? <laughs> so <laughs> you sit. All those lotties. What's that? All those lotties. Like I just I'm picture sorry. him being like, "Just you owe me fifteen thousand zloty," and me being like, "I don't even know what the fuck that is, cuz." <laughs> <laughs> fuck out of here. <laughs> um, before the end of letdown, you guys get to be a part of, to me, a, a era moment for hardcore and on the precipice of you opening 
probably one of the coolest tours that had come around in so many years. You're out in California or were you somewhere else? It was California, right? Which, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. You're in California. You're playing some bullshit and some dude's got a beer in your face and you smack it out of his hand. Yeah. And that, you know, thank God there was no fucking Twitter. <laughs> it was like, was it still MySpace where people MySpace bulletin back then when that happened? Oh, yeah. MySpace yeah. bulletins and Bridge Nine put you, put a fucking crosshair on your head with some whack band and some whack dudes. Unless, are they not whack? Did they get unwhack since that time? No, no, yeah. We're all, right. we're all cool. Everything's you guys cool were whack, yeah. and now you're not whack. <laughs> anyway. Everything's all awesome. Yeah. Uh, so Letdown gets an opportunity to open for Ceremony, Have Heart, and Blacklisted Tour, which is a national tour on the precipice of what would be the breaking up of Hey Have Heart, um, the rise of Blacklisted and Ceremony. But to me, that was just an insane moment for hardcore. And I was so happy to see you open. In fact, I even went down to the show and wore a let down crew neck and stood on stage in the town where there was like, if he comes and plays this show, there's going to be a problem. So on purpose, I'm like, fuck that. I'm going to stand. So I remember standing on stage while you guys are playing, not even trying to hide the fact that I was there, but literally standing my, with my crew neck on like, you know, come get it. You want some? <laughs> and I remember you being like, oh, okay, I guess it's cool. You're here. <laughs> Well, that's like, I mean, that was kind of the culmination. I mean, every fucking time we would tour, you know, we did like a two week tour in 2007 and, you know, when I, when I split my leg open and shit and then people were trying to fight me on those tours and every single time it'd be the same thing. I'm like, yo, if you got a fucking problem, let's go. It's like, you know, if, if you weren't like, you just come, come to the table, be like, you know, any other time, me and my, me and my boys would fuck you up. I was like, all right, let's fucking, if you want to beat me up, beat me up. Nobody ever did shit. You know, like we played Chattanooga, Tennessee, and there's a drunk fuck up front. Just being, it's like, yo, like trying to put beer like in my face and shit. I fucking, you know, I was, I was pretty civil for a little bit. And then we got into it and like the whole show wanted to fight us. And so this is like nothing fucking new. Like, you know what I mean? Literally the whole time as a band, it would just be some drunk asshole trying to start shit. I would start shit back. It would basically be four of us against the whole fucking show. And then just nobody, nobody ever did anything. Not that I'm, I'm saying come find me now, but I'm like, yo man, I weighed 120 pounds. If you wanted to do something, you could have done something, not just, Talk about damn if, if you you know another day here you would have been yeah fucked this was up. Wednesday and not Tuesday it's one I'll fight on Tuesday <laughs> like, I'm literally right here I got Kyle Kimball with the fucking a symbol in his fucking hand ready to fucking go let's be like and that's that's always about he, is he could literally throw a symbol 150 yards that mother <laughs> that motherfucker has an accuracy with a symbol that is legendary that's what I mean that's what I always loved about being in the band though is like you know. If, <laughs> I would do something stupid or say something stupid or punch somebody or kick somebody and they would come back at it. And then we would all be squatting up. Like, like it's not, I feel like now like a band would be like, Oh, that's his fucking problem. Like yeah, I got push you off him. the stage. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, yo, in, in Europe, yeah. Like Justin was moshing for like an unbroken cover or something again. People tried to fight him and I was right there with him. Like, so yeah, that the, the, the half heart shit, you know, every fucking, cause that was when world moves fast existed. And I just remember somebody's like, yo, have you seen this shit? I'm like, what's up? He'd be like, the second he leaves the venue, I'm going to fucking sneak that pussy, like, blah, 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 shit. And he'd be like, well, it's going to be a fucking miserable tour. You know what I mean? I was just, I, every fucking show I was kind of looking and, and seeing and making sure that, uh, 
nothing crazy was going on, but yeah, for whatever fucking reason, nothing happened. Um, yeah, that's the thing that it's hard to, it would be hard to sit there and go, Hey, how many times have you played a show where someone stuck there, you know, like stuck a beer in your face and you try to fight them and it turned into a gimmick. It was like another part of the equation would let down where without fail, <laughs> you know, it, it, you guys were in this shit, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, just every fucking time. So what ended let down? So we did, we were doing that half hard tour. We got asked, I still don't even, I think that's probably like a Dave Saucer thing. Like I'm doing this record. Can you, can this band open a thing, whatever. Um, and so we did a tour and it was cool, but so Kyle didn't want to do it because it was his last year of college, I think. And he didn't want to take it off. And I was like, yo, man, I'm not trying to be a dick because we had a pretty strict no, no filling thing. I was like, we've turned down a lot of stuff because I don't want to play without you, but we cannot not do this tour. Like That's like the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. So he didn't do the tour, which, so uh, this kid Mikey ended up playing drums for us instead. And it was just different. And um, it was like cool, but it just, you know, like I said, it just wasn't the same. And then, you know, at that point we'd been banned for like four years. We had done, you know, we'd gone coast to coast a bunch of times, did fucking Europe. you failed miserably in Europe, obviously. But you know, th- with a band like us, there doesn't need to be more music. And if it's not going to be more music, there's really not a point to, to still playing. You know what I mean? If people just hear the same fucking songs over and over again. So we did some shit in spring 09. And then I, I think we were just like, you know, at that point, I wasn't fucking with Justin, I don't think. And uh, Kimball wasn't in the band anymore. I had to kick him out, which was awkward because he's still a mother of mercy, but he couldn't be in letdown. So that was a weird conversation to have to have. So... But, let's uh, let's roll into why Mother Mercy started happening too at the same time. If we can if we can yeah. keep it uh timeline pure. Yeah, we just I mean the same thing like I do any band I do is like if I see a void in something that I want to hear, you know, I'm not musically inclined, I can't fucking play an instrument, but I'll try to find people that are into similar shit that I want to do. So um, you know, letdown, I like being in, but everybody it was kind of just we had the uh I don't want to say the passion because that sounds so fucking. No, it's honest. Don't, 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 don't edit yourself. That was a good one. Yeah. It's just like we, we existed and we did the things we did because we wanted to fucking do it and we wanted to push our shit out there and stuff. And then, so with mom, I was like, well, I want to do something like now everything's gone too far the other way a little bit around here. So I want to do something heavier, um, you know, with some other people that I want to be in a band with. And, uh, so Cause me and Vince actually, one of the kids of mom, uh, we had a band in high school. I, I forgot about it. So right now where it was literally just, he ripped off horror show songs. And, uh, so I always wanted to be in a band with him cause I thought he was a really good songwriter. And so we played, uh, the four of us played like a cover show and I was like, damn, these guys can actually play their instruments. It's kind of crazy. Like you guys want to do like an actual band and try to do something like heavier. And like, yeah, yeah, let's go. So Joe Kane wasn't even in the band at the time. And, uh, we were talking about trying to write shit and like, Oh, let's do like, I don't really know what the hell we want to do. Like some kind of like New York hardcore shit with like ring warm parts or something. And then, uh, they're like, yo, well, Joe Kane really wants to be in a band. I was like, I don't know, man. I never played with two guitar players. I think it's kind of whack, but, uh, they, they were like, no, we, I think it's a good idea. So yeah, the five of us just started getting together and then, um, started playing just cause we let down had played in the fucking burb so many fucking times. And I was like, I want to switch it up. So then mom basically, you know, one of our, I remember one of the first shows, it was a Mongoloid record release. And then Greg called me and said, uh, I think Brace War dropped. Just let that one play. I was like, nah, but I have like a new band, like if you want us to play. So like mom got to play that. And then, 
you know, pretty early on, we started getting like really good reactions and, and people were super into it. So it was, it was definitely a lot different than grinding for years or let down to make anybody care. Well, that's what I think. Um, I think that's what comes from all this. You work hard in one band, you establish yourself, so to speak. And then the next stage obviously is boom. Now we don't have to work as hard because we kind of have the momentum. People know you. And again, when we talk about, you know, in this story, things have changed drastically a couple times already in hardcore. Whereas if you were to start this mother mercy band in Oh, four Oh five, I don't think it would have had the same inertia because no, there no. wasn't really a, uh, I hate the term, but like there wasn't a crowd or there wasn't like a, a, a fan base in hardcore that really would vibe with it. But like you said, the fast core got faster because of the ceremonies and the pot, you know, all this stuff. And then the void where the heavy stuff started getting back into being cool. Like the first couple of years of this hardcore, dude, we had some sick heavy bands. I mean, all at war didn't do well in 2007. That fucked me up. I remember being in that pit, looking around. It was you, I think Spencer from Trash Talk, me, and like I could count the number of people in that pit on like two hands. You know what I'm saying? I was like, yo, what the fuck? Like this is – I never thought I'd be able – like when I, you know, I was like 13 or 14. I loved all war. I can't believe I'm seeing them and nobody's fucking doing anything. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like I was literally mind blown. It's like uh, – yeah, like that was a weird year. And a lot of bands, I had to not curtail or, or change it up, but I had to be cognizant booking it like wow man heavy shit man going over like a fart in a church <laughs> but then by 09 it felt like the heavy was like the new thing and mom is a sonically different band than letdown but it's still bob wilson shirtless hairier than ever a couple more pounds <laughs> that's a, i mean the funny thing is like i like that you say that because i always looked at it like i'm always the same no matter what like i would fucking wear you know, whatever shirt in either band and not, not really, you know, put on like a different, different face or personality with the band. You know what I mean? Like I'll still X up for mom shows. Let's just let people know. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I didn't stop doing letdown cause I'm not straight edge. I'm still fucking straight edge, but we started people like, Oh, like I like mom. Cause like, you know, I don't really like letdown cause Bob is just kind of like an asshole. And like in mom, like he's just like, he's like happy. And like, Bob was like, I don't know what the fuck set you're talking about. Like I do the same shit. I actually got more fights during Mother Mercy sets than letdown sets. Like, <laughs> like the amount of people times that Vince would have to throw his guitar down and be like, "Yo, what's up?" Yeah, and he's like, at this toothless so grin, ready to rock everybody. <laughs> yeah, I guess I kind of look crazy. Him with no teeth, me with my chipped ass tooth from the fucking the record release show is probably not a great look on stage. But uh, yeah, that was always the thing early on. Like people would be like, "Ah, oh, yeah, like." It became like the acceptable of like, oh, I didn't, I didn't fuck with that because they were too mean. But like, Mother Mercy is like my shit. I'm like, dude, it's the same fucking thing. I just, I'm not talking about straight edge shit. Like, I don't really know what the fuck you're talking well, about. Well, I think that's an important thing to think about. Um, you know, this whole time, I don't think straight edge was getting a lot of love. No, fuck. I mean, so there would be like the blank stare, third party records kind of shit where like, I'm straight edge because I'm sounding, I'm standing in like, like in opposite direction of what society wants me to be and like all that bullshit. Like you want to be a better person or something. And then there was like the corny verse bullshit straight wall at the time, straight edge. And then, you know, given the fucking speeches in between songs and shit. So like the punkier straight edge sit sucked. The, the more popular straight edge sit, I had nothing in fucking common with. So we were kind of just in the middle 
like, dude, we don't agree with any of you. Like, I fucking, I don't know what the hell you're fucking talking about. So literally until, like, no tolerance probably or, like, even step four when that shit came out, like, there's no straight edge bands, you know, Mongoids, but, you know, that was more just because Greg, um, but it, it's just like in general, you know, we didn't really have a place with other straight edge bands. And, you know, honestly, you know, cause we got asked to play edge day in Boston a couple years in a row and, you know, we would cover SSD. Nobody would fucking care. People would just be pissed off. They're on the bill. So we never really had a place in, in, you know, the, the straight edge shit at the time. I'm thinking that, um, what are we, where are we at? Oh eight, oh nine ish. Not the yeah, oh seven. And so you were starting to really get active in the burbs, not just, I mean, you, there was always shows in the burbs, but the thing is, is um from like Oh three to Oh eight, there was a couple different people doing shows and there was um the Boyertown crowd. You know, you'd have your Doylestown shows. Bob, Bob Meadows was integral in a lot of that. And then what was that Madball show? 06, 07? When was that Madball show? Oh, shit. Okay. That makes a lot more sense now to the story. So, you know, it it goes to say that Doylestown had legit rep. You know what I mean? Like, hold on a second. Fuck. This is a problem. All right, good. I'll make a note of that. My uh, my, I didn't realize my battery power. Hold on, let me do. What was that? One twenty-seven point five. Sorry, that's my note to fix. <laughs> All right, one, two, three. Yeah, at the time, Doylestown had some powerhouse fucking shows, and you guys had, just like you did when we were talking about with the letdown crowd, there was a huge amount of people coming to shows out in the suburbs. And I, you know, again, had you guys maybe not done what you did, I don't know if that would ever got as big as it did. You know? Yeah. We we were very uh, insistent on, you know, now I feel like it's, it's much easier to be like a Philly band and, you know, put Philly on shit. And we were like, I mean, we love Philly, but like we want to rep what we have going on. So we'd always make it a point, be like, yo, we're Doylestown. We're Doylestown band. You know, we're, we're not Philly kids. We didn't grow up in the city. But, you know, this is what we got going on out here. Pay attention to what's going on out here, too. Um, so I think that was that was a big help. And, um, you know, there was there's really no there's no one person doing shit in the burbs at the time. Like it would always be somebody wants to do a show. OK, cool. I have the team center. Like what bands want to play? And the kid Dion actually that was in War Pigs and Rock Bottom had a cool like locking out style band called No Joke back then. And he actually did a lot of the shows, um, you know, in the area. And then, you know, it was just kind of like, okay, Drew, oh, we're doing like, we're going on tour for two weeks. Let's do a show in Drew's backyard, you know, and just have some people play. Oh, there's like an abandoned house next to Drew. Let's just like set up shit and get bands to play and all that stuff. So, you know, especially early on, it was just kind of, there's a lot of people just doing stuff and there's sort of always be stuff going on. So, you know, at least until a certain point, it was just kind of like more of a collaboration. Now, I mean, because of that, that's when I think beginning of when you started thinking about doing your own shows, right? Yeah. So I think one of the first shows I ended up doing is because after we played uh, in California, uh, Pressure and Skin Like Iron needed to show out here and nobody really uh, had any interest really. And I was like, well, I'll fucking, you know, I never really 
I tried doing one show once when with my best friend when we were 14 and it sucked ass. I haven't done a show in like seven years, but I'll give it a try. And um, so that was, yeah, that was the first one that I, I did. And then, you know, I started doing a little more consistently. And then other Bob actually moved to the area. And this shit actually fucking never sat right with me because, so we built up our shit like as much as we possibly could. We had, we got a whole new generation of kids in the shit. You know what I mean? Like not even like self dick suck. Like it's just, you know, we find a kind of carved out a niche out there for everybody and made people, you know, get into cool shit and did a bunch of shows and all that. So we had a scene already, you know, we had people that did shows and I did shows and then he came and he started doing shows and then people like, Oh, finally hardcore's in fucking Doylestown. And I'd be like, yeah, we've been fucking doing this for, at that point, you know, probably like five or six years in the burbs, like amongst ourselves. So, you know, that, that always fucking kind of pissed me off. Cause I'm like, you know, I mean, it's not like, you know, the fucking Lord and savior of hardcore came and, and saved Doyle sound from no hardcore. Like we had that shit. And at a certain point, you know, we were cool, but I started getting pretty, pretty salty. And then he was just like, yo, like, uh, if you want, you know, I'll throw you some money if you want to start uh, helping like fill out bills with me and, and shit like that. So he, he's the one who got me, you know, that's, I think right around the time when Siren and the Moose started doing a lot more. So he would have a band hit him up and then I would basically do the undercard, you know, and getting all the locals and bringing shit from out of town. And then, you know, I would do my own shows, but uh, it would all be under his like booking thing or whatever. So there's still people who to this day, I'm kind of going, no, no, I like it. Keep going. Speak the truth to this day. To this day, like there's people that know, they absolutely fucking know that I'm the one who is doing, you know, certain shows and all that shit, but they'll talk about it. And because I am who I am and we had, you know, whatever history, they're like, oh, that was like a Meadows thing. Like, yeah, but he fucking killed it with that show. I'm like, he doesn't know who the fuck any of these bands were. Like, this was literally my show. And that's like a big reason why later on I started to put my name on shit. Cause like I look at all those old flyers now and it just says his booking collective on there. And I'm like, yo, dude, I busted my ass to make this fucking, you know, like cold rolled you know, fucking Swamp Thing, War Hunger, whatever fucking show, like No Tolerance, Free Spirit, Step Forward, any any fucking show that I did, like, it just kind of gets looked at as like, oh, it's so sick that, you know, Meadows is able to do that in Dual Sound. I'm like, yeah, I mean, he did cool shit. You know, he, he had definitely had a big part of helping touring bands come through, but like, A, it existed beforehand. B, I was doing a lot of the legwork, and then, you know, he was obviously breaking me off a little bit, but, you know, as we came to find out, find out later, like, that wasn't what should have been going on, but uh yeah so just in general that's that's basically how the uh i started actually starting doing more actually booking wise and all that well like from the outsider perspective i mean we went to shows at like the chalfont church um this warrior mm-hmm. was pretty active there was a lot of shows going on and, and i gotta echo what you said i mean i remember getting flyers from you and you being like you always to this from that day to now you drop some band names where i'm like i don't even know who the fuck this is and you know <laughs> who the fuck is in the band you know where they live, what the records were, you know, you knew everything about these bands and there was a serious passion in there. And, uh, I can recall him having 108 and being like, Hey, I got 108. Can you help me out? And I got like TUI on the show. Yeah. And, and that's the only reason. Yeah. And it did yeah. good because of that. And I, and, um, you know, and then the man ball thing was its own little fucking controversy in that, like for me, you know, we're supposed to build people like you up so you understand how it works and give you the tools you need so you can become who you are now. 
And I always felt like, um, what was that that um, in that same time frame was that um, that have heart show that you guys were going to do right? Yeah, have, yeah, it was, it was supposed to be just Rival Mob, Have Heart, Mongoloids, Mother Mercy because we're doing. Yeah, and I remember you telling me and me being like, "Yo, we got to get Ringworm on this, so it's an even bill." Where before you might say that, just I would say that to people all the time, like, "Ah, oh, don't split up the don't split up the draw, make the draw like cooler." So many fucking people wouldn't listen to me or be like, "Oh, you know, no, they'll be fine without it," or you know, like I always hated the idea of. No, man, it's not even the same crowd. And it's like, come on, man, miss me with that. <laughs> yeah, them and pulling teeth got added to it, which just made that show fucking, you know, insane. Yeah, and I, and I it was like, yo, I had to call up, I had to call up the 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 booking agents, and um, young boy Justin, who's now in like a totally different universe, a man overboard, who was kind of like typical for that time. I'm just booking hardcore because it's easy right now, and I'm trying to get my name in the booking world, you know, like. That always sat yeah. wrong with me too, and I think that that's what a lot of homeboys thing was. Is like, for those listening, you ever I say this a million times. Hardcore is the easiest thing to book in some regard because it's entry level shit, and a lot of these fucking people who don't want to do this the rest of their time start, then they quote unquote build the name up, and then as soon as they can abandon everything and just go do the stuff that's going to make the money, they fucking do. And yeah. that's where the Bob Wilsons come in with like the. Nah, that's not how it works. I'm going to stay with this shit. And I was always proud that you stayed with this shit. And I mean, I, yeah, I doubt you're going to try to get to the point where you were trying to do beyond that. But it, early on, it was very evident what you were trying to do when you were booking your own shows. That's what, I mean, just in general, I think the coolest thing about hardcore is if you want to see something, if you want something to happen, you can fucking do it. So it's like, Oh, we're doing a mom record release. All right. I want fucking mind eraser to come down. I haven't seen mind eraser in a minute. They haven't played. We want to bring this shit to Doyle sound. And like specifically that, like they couldn't play. So new Lowe's ended up fucking playing, which is ended up me meeting Doug Cho that day, Doug free and forming a relationship with him, you know, which led to the rival mob shit eventually. And then, so all this stuff kind of, you know, builds up over time and all that. So I just, I liked the, the freedom to do. I always love, building my own bill out like i fucking i'll do a tour if i have to and try to make it as different from other spots as possible but i think the coolest thing in hardcore is being able to pick five bands and then honestly you and red cheeks early on i hit both of you up when i was starting probably was like 21 or whatever fuck and was like yo like i'm starting to do more shit can you guys give me some like because i don't really know what the fuck i'm doing like can you just kind of help me figure out what the fuck to do and the advice that you guys gave me to this day like Yo, like, make it, like, an event, basically, you know, if you are friends with the band and you want them to come and become, you know, your friends and see them and all that shit, bring them out. Try to try to vary as much as possible. Don't just copy what other fucking people are doing. And, like, all those things to this day, like, yeah, like, I just, I, I'm very cognizant of that every time I do a show. Like, I, I want to, I've, I've literally used that for fucking, like, 15 straight years when I'm trying to book shit, you know what I mean? Well, that's what, you know, like, the slap and opener on it tour is what kind of, makes a lot of shows homogenized. Oh, I could see this show in Baltimore or Philly. And then, oh, yep. well, the opener is really going to change the bill. Not so much. And so yep. I'm glad that you were, you know, early on and picking up that because I know what's also cool is, and we'll get to this, but like it was cool when your band had the ability to do more than just be a local band. You were still in that mindset. 
And that kind of brings me to what got you on bridge nine. So I think at some point, actually, we let down, try to be on bridge nine and we definitely got told thanks, but no thanks. And we were like, okay, I mean, yeah, it's understandable. Like they probably, a one, they don't want anything to do with what's going on right now. But, um, so we were on six feet under and, uh, you know, after three came out and we did Andy Rice actually, you know, was booking for us and we were the only non death wish band that he was doing just cause he liked us so much. And so he hooked us up with a lot of cool shit and, you know, a lot of good opportunities and all that. And then, uh, so I guess just, just doing the tours we did and, you know, just, just playing so much and all that, um, bridge nine reached out to us and, you know, I thought, so we, we thought about it and we were actually torn because at that point we had only ever done records with, people we were friends with, you know what I mean? Like Devil 23, six feet under, uh, the first letdown thing, doppelganger, which is, you know, there's an Allentown record store that we were really good friends with the guy. Um, you know, collapse records, you know, shed early on with, with mother mercy. Um, so it was the first time that somebody not from like our squad was trying to do a record. So we're pretty torn. And we hit up Dave and we're like, yo, like if you don't want us to do this, we love six feet under your actual friend. You know, we got no problem sticking, sticking with you and doing another record with you. And he's like, nah, he's like, nah, I think it'd be good for you guys. You know, I think it'd be cool, whatever. So we did it. And then I felt bad because as soon as we did it, there's like kind of like a mass exodus from six feet under bridge nine. And I was like, fuck man. If I, I was like, if I knew all these other bands are going to follow suit, I would have stuck with you. Cause you know, you're like, you're an actual boy and all that. So I kind of felt guilty off the bat with that, but yeah, bridge nine uh, just sent us like a real nice email to start off. Just like being like, yo, we like what you guys are doing. We think you guys can do a lot of cool shit. We'd love to do some records for you guys. So uh, it was, it actually was a harder decision than I initially thought it would be, but uh, we ended up doing that with them. Now, um, what do you think the difference is between being on something like a, six feet under with Dave or when you got to the point when you were able to be on something like bridge nine? Um, it's, it's still the same thing that happens this day. Like it's like kind of being on from within or triple B, you know, I, I feel like that's a pretty good comparison for back then. Like if you're with, with six feet under, it was like, you are all they're paying attention to when they're doing everything they can, putting everything behind you with bridge nine, especially with us, by the time the record came out, cause I think it got delayed once or twice, probably because of me fucking taking forever. But, you know, I think soon after that, I think it was when the foundation record came out. So, you know, you get, it's much easier to get lost in the shuffle with all that. And we didn't really have time for, you know, our record to kind of be out there before, you know, other bigger records came out from the same label. So, you know, which isn't, you know, bridge nine's fault at all, but, and I have no zero complaints with being on them, but, I, I always liked being able to call or text Dave and just get a quick answer than emailing somebody I had only met in passing and kind of trying to explain what was going on. You know what I mean? So it both, it has its advantages and it's also just like, it's kind of like a weird thing. Now I'm going to cap us, cap us up together. <laughs> that mom release show though. That was great. Broad street ministry. And I mean, when I think about that, that's like, I was just so proud of you. And I don't care how that came off. I was so proud of you. Like, here's baby boy on Bridge Nine. The record's coming out. It's going to be out on, you know, Bridge Nine. You know, like Philly, once again, we get on Bridge Nine. You know, that's a fucking dope thing for us. And then to do it at Broad Street and then upstairs. And, then, you know, uh, unless I'm mistaken, was that the time that Sold All played? 
that was the first sold off show. Yes. When the last, the last song Keith, uh, moshed around the entire circle that was watching the band. Yeah. Literally only time I've seen a singer mosh harder than the crowd for his own band. <laughs> it was dead as fuck. And then the very last song, he straight up couldn't contain himself anymore. Ripped the shirt off and just fucking <laughs> did a complete loop around the crowd. Yeah. Like that's, that's Keith for you. Like, he pent up so much mosh energy during a band, even though it was his band that he just said, fuck it. I got to, I got to mosh for this band. <laughs> but like, I just thought that it probably wasn't the highest of watermarks for mother of mercy because you guys had at this stage, this is hardcore is getting bigger and you guys were fucking clowning bands that were bigger than you at the fest. Like you guys would get on and people had to follow you. And I love that. But like, it was just cool to see you guys in that moment. It was fucking sick. The uh, the only real regret I have about that show <laughs> is uh, I got the most fucked up haircut beforehand. I was like, ah, right, we got a record we show. I got I got to look good. You know, not you know whatever. And the dude fucked my shit up so bad. He basically gave me like the fryer. Oh my god, bro! And, like I was looking in the mirror. I was like, this motherfucker. And like I tried to like have a hoodie with my hood up all night. And people were like, yo, what's going on? Took my hood off. And it, dude, it's so fucking imbi- like I saw a picture of that recently. I was like, God damn it, man! I just go back and beat the fuck out of that barber for making me look like such. Like an you asshole. brought two pictures. One was Friar Tuck. One was um, uh, what was his name? Um, um, Jim Carrey from Dumber and Dumber. That was the two haircuts. <laughs> like, yo, if you could, my man, if you could mix like Friar Tuck with this guy, that's the look I'm going for. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know what uh? Kind of with the this is hardcore shit with mom. Like, I, I mean, those are some of the, the best sets we ever got to play. But um, my my favorite, the thing that sticks out the most to me is we, we got done playing and you came up to me and you're like, you better check your fucking boy. And oh, I was like, but he what? was being a baby. He was like, I told him he had a good set. And he said, it was okay. Fuck that. You guys fucking crushed it. He's been a little baby. I told him to get his fucking science experiment off the fucking stage. Because well, he, had, he had all the pedals. So you told him to get his fucking science experiment. So this is a good opportunity for me to extol uh, my opinion on um, guitar pedals. <laughs> Blacklisted shows up. They just go right to the head. Tim... And then later, Neen would eventually just go straight to NASA level control boards. Whenever that shit comes out, I know the band's going to get whacker and whacker. Now that wasn't the case for Blacklist because they kept it, they kept it pretty much a hundred and left the weird shit into the studio, but always were raw. But hardcore bands stop. This isn't like a video <laughs> game where you get upgrades and you just build more shit. Like if your sounds dope, your sounds dope. You don't see Alt War. Frank three guns don't got a fucking super pedal board. Like get the fuck out of here with this. And it seemed like locally that was always the gimmick. Even that fucking, uh, even Donnie Mutt at fucking one, one up did it. I'm like, bitch, you're a fucking posse band. Oh fuck. Do you got these fucking pedal boards were that combined with the lip ring signal at the end of that. But that's the gimmick is like, yo, we're starting to get better. You know what I need to do? Let's add some fucking pedals. It's like, get the fuck out of here. Just play the fucking riffs. And so what Bob's what Bob's telling is a story about a band that I watched fucking crush. And it was Drew, wasn't it? Oh, it was Joe, Joe Kane. That's right. That motherfucker. So Joe Kane's on the side of the stage, and you would have thought he either shit his pants or his um 
where his girl is like making out with a guy in a crowd. He can't do nothing about it. He looks so <laughs> mad about, and I'm like, what the fuck? And I went up to him like, yo man, like what's going on? He's like, it was all right. I'm like, what the fuck do you mean? All right. Like, what the fuck do you want? Do you want the crowd to suck your dick literally? So I told like, you know, like and maybe it's because I gave so much of a fuck about you guys and where your band yeah. was going. And this is hardcore was, you know, like a trampoline. We're trying to make you guys bounce up here. So I had a vested interest just in the emotional content of you guys getting up there and making bands that think like, ah, oh, you know, who knows what the earth is. They're like, ah, oh, well, well yeah, you follow that bitch. And it was actually the Bob Wilson. <laughs> you are the curator of the Bob Wilson spot, the official Philadelphia spot. So please tell the story about the Philadelphia spot on This Is Hardcore. That's just, you know, it's the first spot on Friday. And, you know, I know a lot of bands probably want to play later in the day or headline or be direct support and all that. But to me, being able to, to pop the fest off and, and be the first band that people are, are ready to see and, you know, they've been waiting all fucking month or whatever to, to go off for a band, I think that's like the optimal position for, for a band to succeed. And over the years, it just became – I think it just started off by coincidence just because we were, you know, smaller but the most local. And then – I literally started requesting that shit. I was like, yo, just put us first. Like, I, I just want to fucking play first because A, you get it out of the way. B, you know, I, I feel like the sets are usually banging. So the fact that that became like the Philly, this is hardcore memorial spot. Like, I, I fucking love that that became a thing over time. So specifically for me, I go to Bob. It might have been the first time Mother Mercy was going to play. I think and I so, said, Bob, yeah. where does mom want to play? And you're like, I want to play first on Friday, on Monday, Friday, because the line was still at the old venue was so fucking long, and I'm running yep. around like a maniac. I'm calling everybody idiots. I'm fucking screaming. I'm, you know, literally just fucking straight hulking out. And it was always like, oh, don't get near Joe during Friday because we're trying to get everybody in, trying to get a fucking fifteen hundred kids in a room that probably didn't fit that in time for doors. And every year, Chan came up with a new fucking game. It was. This year we're giving everybody pat downs. All right, this year everyone's got a limbo under the door. It's like it never was just let these motherfuckers in the room. And so when you put me on to this, like, oh, yo, Fridays whenever we get to see a band, I was actually kind of fucking mind blown. Literally fucking mind blown. Like, oh, this is this is a spot. And so tradition has remained that the first band playing Friday of This Is Hardcore has been. And will always be a local band to our scene because of Bob Wilson. Yeah, I love it. I'm glad it's, it's, it's held up over time. No, and in fact, I mean, as the years go on, when I don't have that in mind, I think all I don't think it's been all year, but like me and you will definitely start talking about like who do we want first on Friday? Like you know, like are they first? It's literally a decision, like straight up. It's like, dude, who do we want to put over the most? Like, who do we want? people to be like, Oh fuck. You know what I mean? And come away from the weekend. Like, love yeah. And like, and, real- and you, because of being the, your spot, you had a big hand in every time we've had a band, you know, like it's become the spot that we want our locals to get to, you know, like, and so that's just another cool, impactful thing. So the difference between mom and letdown is that because of bridge nine and also because of hardcore and the way things were, Motherfuckers started asking you guys to go on tour and like you were supporting sick of it all. You were supporting agnostic front. Like that had to be such a divergence from going out there and fighting these crumb bombs in like East Alabama <laughs> in someone's fucking backyard. 
I mean, yeah, it was, I mean, to me specifically, like, you know, when me and my friends started getting super into hardcore, like we fucking love sick of it all. Obviously, you know, we had the, the, uh, the in effect video, the VHS, the 91 shit and thought it was the coolest fucking it thing. It is the so, coolest fucking thing. And that was, it still is. To this day, I fucking love it. Yep. And, you know, one of the biggest, bigger shows I saw early on was sick of it all at the truck. And, you know, always loving them. And, you know, AF, I love super early on. And so just, you know, to me, those bands are like, it was just even being able to play with those bands and watch them every night. It was such a big difference from, you know, playing with some fucking shitty, whatever, fucking party thrash band or whatever the hell we were playing with. So, you know, and actually having, uh, not like, it's not like we got catering every night or something like that, but it was like a nice backstage area. It was like a, such a fucking difference from what we're used to, what I personally was used to, and Kyle and Drew who eventually be in the band. Um, so yeah, it was just because you know, like I said, letdown would never people would never be like, oh, you want to do a tour together. So whenever we would get offers and people would reach out to us, like yeah, we think of you guys are cool. It was, it was just a real crazy difference to me. And uh, yeah, so even if the sets weren't really the greatest for us, obviously. Just being able to say I toured with those fucking bands, you know, my mom fucking dropped me off at the AF show at the Croc, Crocodile Rock, and Brett Michaels is on the fucking marquee, and she's like, "You're playing the same fucking place that Brett Michaels is playing next week," and I was like, "Yeah, I mean, it's not gonna be like that, but yeah, just getting even her to who had no idea what the hell I was really doing all this time to see that I was doing something kind of cool was was a was a nice change." Mama. She definitely fucking loved her son. That's fucking badass. I love that. Like, it's always cool when someone comes on the show and talks about um, the uh, the thing that validates them to their parent. Yeah. You know, I, I always love hearing it like, oh, shit, this is what made it happen. <laughs> so what do you think stopped you from continuing with mom more than anything? So when we started, it was a lot of fun and, and the shows were cool and you know, every, everything was cool with the band. And then uh, with the last LP, I think the songs are good, but it just, not that I wasn't really feeling it as much. It was just, uh, it was just kind of different and I, I wasn't really sure how I felt about it anymore. And then, you know, we, we would do some stuff and the shows weren't that great. And then we ended up doing a tour with like Stick Together and Foundation and I was like, oh, it's going to be sick. And then the shows were pretty beat. And we were kind of just at each other's throats most of the time. And then, you know, we kind of looked at each other like the last day and we're like, I don't really want to do this anymore. I'm not really feeling this. And there was like, oh, I'm glad you said that because I'm not also not feeling this. And then because uh, Joe, that's when Daylight was trying to get more, uh, get into more shit and all that. And then, you know, Super Heaven. And he was like, without him, the band wouldn't have done anything because he's the only responsible one, the only one. Like kept track of shit, you know, organized everything, ordered the merch, drove the fucking, you know, whatever. So once he was like, he couldn't fucking do it without him. So I was like, all right, man, if you want to go full on into this, which I totally get, like, I don't mind just playing a quote unquote last show and just whenever the fuck we want to play again, we'll play. But, you know, we'll just call it, call it quits for or at least a time being before we all fucking hate this shit. And how do you feel? Thinking about that, was that right? To, was that the right move? I honestly, I think we we probably could have kept it going for at least a little longer. But I mean, so Letdown was a band for just about five years. Mom was a band for three and a half years, I think, maybe just over four. Um, 
So I kind of, my interests kind of were other places anyways. Like I, at that point I was like, all right, now on the flip side, everything's fucking heavy and it's all the same kind of shit. And like, I want to do something else. So that I started, you know, I got kind of stir crazy with that and wanted to start something else anyway. So I, I wasn't really sweating it at the time. But ultimately you think you could have kept it going. We could have, I mean, but yeah, I mean, I don't know how much bigger we could have gotten and we were kind of, kind of plateaued probably the year before that. So probably got out at, at the appropriate time. I don't really lose too much sleep thinking about like what we could have been. You know what I mean? Like we're just not made. I personally am not made to be a fucking career tour musician for sure. Musician rather. And, uh, it, it's just, yeah, I think, I think we had our time and then, uh, I like being able to just play every now and again rather than keep going full on touring for a while. Do you think the term was you should have brought up this one to get to, do you think big or like where your standing was and like the national rankings ever matter for you until you were a mother mercy? No, even in mom, like, you know, I knew people liked us, but I never gave a fuck and I never, you know, carried myself in a certain way because, you know, we drew 200 kids in fucking Tacoma, Washington or whatever the hell, you know what I mean? Like, I just did it because I just like playing. I like touring. You know, I like playing different places. I like not being home. So, yeah, I, I never really put too much thought into – I knew we weren't a big dog, but I knew we weren't dog shit. You know what I mean? I, I like the place that we were at. Now, when I think about this era, I love that you brought up the foundation gimmick. Because, again, you know, you talk to someone now – foundation is someone's like you know hugest influence and all this fucking shit but you're there on this fucking tour with them and and people much like i say about have heart like you want to say have hearts this giant band that came later you know like Mm -hmm. there's a sad thing that happens in hardcore where a band as they're really grinding and trying to make it the fucking fans aren't there but you break them up all of a sudden everyone really gives a fuck right Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, foundation, you would always bring them up and put them on cool ass shows up here, you know, the fucking show at the church and, you know, Broad Street and all that. But, um, you know, and in the South, that's like the band for kids, you know, those shows are always really good, but, um, definitely until they broke up, I don't think people really, I think people kind of took them for granted because, you know, like, oh, I'll see them next time or whatever, you know, even though they liked them a lot, but, you know, breaking up, I think kind of made people realize how much that band meant to them and definitely elevated them in, into what they are now. Which, you know, that happens to every fucking good band, I feel like, like you said. Like, if they would have had that kind of support when they're, you know, really grinding and shit like that, I think it would have been better for everybody. I mean, just look at Have Heart when they, uh, Homeboy, uh, what's his name, put out the first 7-inch. No one's even buying their first 7-inch, but everybody's capping on the Bridge Nine record. And he's like, hey, I still got their original 7-inch here. And everyone's like, oh, we don't want that bullshit. <laughs> yeah, dude, the fucking, yeah, the bottled up record. Yeah, the, uh that Drew's band on course did a weekend with them when that record came out. And I just remember, cause they were like, Oh, like it's for fans of 10 yard fight. And then, so they played Boston and the college in New Jersey, I think with them. And, you know, there's probably 40 kids at each show. You know what I mean? Like it was just, it kind of was a slow build for them. And then it kind of just exploded. So, um, for me, I think about this is right around the stage where you're thinking more about, booking shows yeah i mean is uh so 2008 i moved to the city um after i got kicked out of the house i was in and then moved to the city to live with a bunch of psychopaths and uh 
So that's when, you know, I was always like, you know, I live in the burbs. I don't want to book in the city because that's like just a weird fucking, I'm, I, I don't like that vibe. I'd rather just build up what's going on out here. But I was like, well, if I'm fucking down here anyways, I might as well start trying to do shit down here. You know, so that's when I started doing, I think probably the Barbary started doing shows around then. Cause I think that's when you did the, maybe it was because I can't remember the exact date, but that's when you did like down to nothing and cold world of the Barbary and all that. So I was like, yeah, that, that's about when I started doing more shit in the city. Yeah. Well, what was cool is, and this is something that is a tutorial and how to be, how to become somebody who can book mm-hmm. in your city when there's someone established without being a complete dickhead and overlapping and being like, there should never be, there shouldn't be competition amongst what we're all trying to do here. And very few times in my life, have I seen someone do what you did where you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm looking to do this show here. And when I say, Oh yeah, I'll get you, I'll get you the venue here, you know? And then yep. I think I, I, me, cause I'm an ass. I put a Bob Wilson joint on it, you know, but like, I love what you did. I love that you stepped up and said, Hey, I can bring something to the table that Joe's not really focusing on. And instead of trying to be um, competitive, you were complimentary. And what you did really established another look that was necessary for Philly hardcore and the region to grow. And a lot of times when young kids come into Booking shows, Alex Bradley. If <laughs> she, she ain't listening to this shit, Joy heard that one. Damn, <laughs> you know, like when young kids want to book shows. Listen, I wanted to book shows all the time that people were booking. That's what you do. You emulate. You want to start a band. You want to stand in the band like your favorite, your favorite band. But when you have someone established that's doing stuff, it becomes really hard to find a place in an established scene like ours. And I, my hats are just off to you to once again, instead of being that dude like, hey, I'm doing this and I don't give a fuck and, you know, creating schism. Nah, man, we backed each other up. That's what, I mean, so, you know, a big part of, so the birds are slowly dying and so many kids fell off and shit. So I was like, you know what, man, it's kind of, I'll still do things occasionally here, but, you know, most of my friends live in the city now. Most of us are around here. Like, let's just fucking try to do cool shit. And I'm like, Never in my life was like, I want to do what Joe does because there's already a Joe. It doesn't need to be fucking two Joes in a fucking city. You know what I mean? So, you know, I kind of just looked at, well, what's what do I want to see here that has been happening that I want to book and bring to it? So I kind of had like that perspective on it when I started doing things. And I think kind of like you said, like people kind of move to the city and even if they're from other areas and just kind of try to take over. And be like, well, I want to book shows. I book shows at home. So, like, well, what do you want to book? And yeah, I, I know a very specific instance about a decade ago when somebody had that opinion. And they're like, well, what do you want to do? And they're like, I want to book this and this and this. He's like, well, I already booked that. We already have been doing these bands for years. There's not really a need for another person to just be doing the same exact thing that I do if we have a great relationship already. And so I never want to step on toes uh, in that way at all because just because of the, the respect I have for you and what you would done for Philly, you know, for fucking at that point, you know, 13 or 14 years. And so I never looked at it from, you know, again, like you said, like a competition standpoint, or I wanted one up him in his own fucking, you know, cause like I'm not from the city. I'm kind of like a get, I obviously got integrated into the city and, you know, over time from just, you know, supporting and all of us being around and all that shit. But 
I would never in my life be like, oh, well, I, I fucking live here now. So I'm doing this. I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like, and then, you know, with all your help and, you know, you never, I don't think viewed me as some dude that was trying to fucking take the throne, you know what I mean? In, in a certain way. So, you know, I always appreciated all the help and, and insight you had with, you know, the, the venues and, you know, lineup ideas and all that shit. So no, it's, it's, it's important because it's a symbiotic relationship. And so, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier at the very earliest part of this podcast where Philadelphia, if you really look at it, is a city that depended upon college people, people from New Jersey and people from the suburbs of Pennsylvania to move to in their early 20s to really be a part of subculture stuff. And more and more you go into it, there's very few people that are born, raised, and totally Philadelphian in the story of hardcore punk. And, um, but that wasn't really why we went the way we went. What happened is when we came up, and I've said this on other podcasts of mine, we were the guys really from Philadelphia. But we showed up, and there's these fucking dickheads like Robbie Redcheeks and his friends, and I'll say that loud enough. That instead of fucking welcoming us with open arms, we're kind of like, huh, this is Philadelphia hardcore. And it's like, oh, what, Mount Holly hardcore? Oh, well, Mainline hardcore? Like all these places that weren't Philly, but because they moved here to do shows, they were very fucking rude to people in their teenage years. And -hmm. thank God there were so many of us. And thank God we had goons like Diego and all these different people that kind of like forced the fucking issue. But in a different scenario, we could have been, quote unquote, run out of the scene. And I'm sure it's happened a million times because some people are there first. Some people lay claim because they're the ones doing the shows and they're the ones doing this, that and the third. And so your group of friends and the people around you or the people came before you in the suburbs had to deal with a very angry fucking group of people that were like, yo, we're from fucking Philadelphia, motherfucker. Fucking tired of fucking <laughs> some dickhead from fucking Gloucester or some dickhead from here moving here telling Philly hardcore this, that. And it's like, get the fuck out of here. If you don't live under the L and you weren't born here, fuck out of here became our mentality. And so that was running high. And then when them Phoenixville shows were happening, dude, we would go to a show in Reading, Pennsylvania, when we were 16 years old, and Chris Mamou would stomp, stamp our hands and say what's up to us, and we became friends with the bands, like the local bands, like Count Time and shit. Or not Count, what the fuck is the name of that band? Fuck, I said Count Time, it's not it. There's a band, and, I, and I'm going to kill myself as soon as I forget, but a band from that time, they became one of our like homies. They were writing letters to us back when you had to write letters and horse and pony bullshit that we went through in the mid nineties, we would do South Jersey, <laughs> North Jersey. We would go to fucking CC's and we had tons of friends, but we go 30 fucking miles outside the city. And we got a bunch of dickheads who were doing the, Oh, well, you know, we're from here and you know, we don't care about Philly. It's like, well, fuck you. You know, like there became an impetus of being like Philly versus everybody with the local suburban world because they were trying to do it. You know, like, and it's so bizarre. It was only in the PA suburbs. We go to New Jersey and, you know, Cracker and everybody, you know, like we had people everywhere. And so the reason why I lay this out for everybody listening at home and to you, Rob, Bob, Robert, Robert Wilson, is that at a certain time, the gates were opened. And 
I'll never forget seeing Agitator a shirt that said Philly Straight Edge. And me being like, fuck you. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> like fucking like, oh, and I made, I, I, think I, I think I bullied them in making me a crew neck. I actually think I did. Yeah, I think I did bully them into making me that agitator uh, crew neck. I was say, I've seen you wear the crew neck, so I didn't know there was a bullying behind it. But that makes No, sense. I think I was like, yo, I got to get that shit. Like that was like, <laughs> that made me fucking happy. And so that became the beginning of when specifically there wasn't a threshold. There wasn't like, oh, well, you live in this, you live 14 feet over the city line. You're not Philadelphia hardcore. And it was because of what you motherfuckers did, how you guys represented, how you guys put on for years and how you put Philadelphia all over that. It was like, yeah, this is your motherfucking shit. You know, like this is what the fuck this is. You know what I'm saying? And so you guys did that through hard work, through, not being like, hey, exactly what you just said. Like, hey, we're going to come in and we're changing everything and fuck all. The-. Like, you you immersed yourselves and you became what this is. And my hats is off to you because, again, I, I never thought I'd say it. I mean, yeah. I mean, I saw so many kids early on that, you know, were also from the burbs, but cried so hard to be down and fucking act like they were from the neighborhood or do whatever. And I was like, look, man. We're going to do what we're going to do. We're going to go to the shows. We're going to go to the shows. We're not going to try to be something that we're not. You know what I mean? We're not going to cozy up just so we can be in with a squad. You know what I mean? Like, we just did our own fucking thing. And like you said, yeah, like, I think just the amount of work that we put in and actually being at every fucking show for fucking ever. And you know what I mean? Like, it's just it was like a more of a natural thing. And then, you know, because before, especially, like I said, even when Letdown was just, it's like putting Philly on something was like a huge deal. Like, I remember when we started being like being able to quote unquote, like put Philly straight edge on shit. We were so psyched because, you know, it, it was just kind of like kind of got to earn it first. You know what I mean? And then obviously that's a little more liberal these days, but at least back then it was kind of like a badge of honor. It's like, yeah, obviously we love being from, from the burbs and putting on for Doyle sound, but like Philly is our central location and this is where we're at all the time. So it was, you know, you guys and, you know, being able to, let us in, you know, in a certain way. It was like, it was a real, it was a big deal to me personally. Cause you know what I mean? It's like, we never, it was just a natural thing. And it never, never tried to be anything that it wasn't. Yeah. That's, it just shows again, the, the, uh, the way that you're cut from a different cloth, you know, like some of your jerk off friends are still sitting in, um, the cornrows a couple fucking miles outside the city, extolling the virtues of fucking four hall shows that happened for fucking 10 years. And it's like, dude, you know, like this whole entire community is supposed to be a shared, but the thing that this, the thing is, is it's not, it's, it's a very, you know, you understand the great thing, you know, there's lines here, you know, like there's people that like being the small little clubhouse. They like being like, I'm the king of this very small fiefdom. And if you don't do what I do, then, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there's people that want to be immersed. I think the way hardcore grew so well here and the reason why shows are doing so well and have been doing so well for such a long time is because, A, we're not beating everybody the fuck up anymore, which is always very important. But more importantly, because of the fact is, is people like you brought your friends into the city, even when people were getting their asses kicked and you made your place and you guys carved your niche and you guys made Philadelphia hardcore better. And so many other times I feel like 
people would rather be the big shot in a bumpkin town than be part of the bigger picture and grow and make something that's already got so many years and such cool culture and stories and bands and just immerse themselves and make what's already established better. And I think that you guys did a fucking fantastic job of that. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it comes down to ego, honestly, at the end of the day, I think like I would rather contribute something and my friends contribute something to cool that we've already loved than, you know, sit there and just get our asses kissed for doing things where we're from and all that. You know what I'm saying? So I think that ego is something that is a bane of the young people's existence because there's pride and that's where it comes from. But in the very same sensibility, you know, as you get older, you learn what the fucking, you learn what it really can fucking hamstring some ideas. And I'm guilty of that. And I have no problem admitting that, but there has always been reasons behind it. It wasn't like unfettered being a dickhead. It was like, well, you don't know what we walked into. And so you guys kind of cured the Philly burbs, you know, crises and created what I felt was a better wave of hardcore at a time when some of our biggest shows were 400 people because hardcore had a different look in that era when you started bringing shit back, you know? And I think like when you would say, Hey, I'm doing this thing instead of me being like, ah, that's going to be whack. I'm like, Oh man, that sounds fucking great. And I would go and be like, this is fucking (laughs) awesome. And I think it leads into what we're going to talk about now where like, at a certain point in time, you guys were living in this house, which is bizarrely enough, a one-time home of one Joseph McHenry. You guys are living there <laughs> and the back-to-back house comes into play. So when you get really invested in not only the new area of Philadelphia, like your second wind in Philadelphia, but you kind of pulled together like a dream team in some kind of way. Cause Neil had moved up here. You had all this different stuff going and your, your house really became like the centerpiece for so many different bands staying there all the time. And I think that that added a lot of leverage and just added another, um, I don't know if we could say like another era, but it, it definitely was a specific period in time, you know? Oh, I mean, 2011, probably till 2013, I feel like that was the shit going on around here. You know what I mean? I, th- I think that whole squad of people and bands uh, kind of took over what was going on at the time. Well, like your house, I mean, you could go in and it would be like either the weirdo from basement, you know, like any other time, if people came from out of town, they were staying in that house. Yeah, Alex lived in the basement, uh, which it's like a terrible joke, but he actually did. I lived on the fucking couch in the living room like a fucking bum with all my clothes behind the fucking couch. So yeah, we had like probably six people living in that house at the time. And yeah, there's always people staying over fucking bands coming up, like people coming through town to record, staying with us. So what was the, um, obviously you were just like there and a part of it. What do you think the best things that came out of back to back and, and the house and all that stuff at that time? (sighs) Fuck. Um, Honestly, the stick together record on it is probably my favorite thing that got released. Uh, that demo and that first seven inch, I think they definitely influenced hardcore in a uh, pretty crazy way at the time and kind of changed what was happening. And uh, I just like that, you know, I, I was able to come out on that. There, there's a lot of stuff that's I truly don't give a fuck about that they ended up doing, but uh, with the label, but um, yeah, just becoming 
friends with, you know, some of the kids that live in the house and all that stuff. And then, you know, integrating other people into, into the squad, basically that weren't really chilling before. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty cool time. Now, where do you go from here? Like what's in your head? What do you got? Like, where was your focus at? Because there was kind of like you had, you had mom and that went away. You're doing shows. Beware was rocking. Like what was, where was Bob Wilson's head at this moment? Dude, I really, you know, cause at that point I'm 25. I'd done two bands that had done a lot of shit and I was kind of just, it's funny actually. So I was supposed to uh, move home in 2010. I think I was moving back to the burbs and uh, my aunt, the day that me and, and Dave Janice lease was up, cause I was going to go back home to live with uh, my great aunt, like my dad's aunt. And I was like, Hey, you know, I'll be there tomorrow. And she's like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm moving back, you know, to Chalfont or whatever, the Burbs. And she's like, yeah, I don't want you living with me. And I was like, I mean, wow. You told me you did. I don't know what the fuck's going on here. And she's like, nah, like, she's like, I don't, I don't know if you misunderstood, but I don't want you in my house. And I was like, all right, that's what's up. And, um, and so that's the only reason I stayed in the city actually, which actually, you know, worked out for the best. But so that's when I ended up, I was like, yo, I don't have a place to stay. Can I live with you guys? I know you just signed a lease and all that. So that's why I ended up staying at their house, sleeping on the fucking couch like a bum. But uh, yeah, so my life is kind of fucked up at the time. Uh, not that that's anything too out of the ordinary, but so I was just like, All right, I just got to start working and literally doing something. So I think at that time I started working with Bean and Sean Foley from Blacklisted at uh, this spot in Center City, like this catering place. So I was just working there, trying to book as many shows as possible. Uh, I knew I never wanted to actually tour again, but, you know, Beware got a lot of cool show offers, you know, going up to Boston a bunch and doing like a weekend with uh, Face Reality and Soul Search. And, you know, just, just getting to play cool shit that we didn't really, uh, I didn't really get to play with the other bands. You know what I mean? Because it's probably because it's the most straightforward kind of hardcore band. So, yeah, basically my life was just working, uh, pretty much just working every day, booking as many shows as possible. And then just, just playing whenever I could. Now with beware, like you said, cause it's straightforward. It, it's the, there's not a uh, lack of irony and almost, you know, like your story where let down when that was happening was kind of like the beginning of what would be a surge. And you've kind of ridden this wave of fast when everybody was going to do this heavy when everyone's fast fast when everyone's heavy yeah i mean like yeah i have always liked you know i always liked all war but i also loved fucking you know youth of today you know what i mean like so i was always into you know, a ton of different kind of hardcore so whenever i felt like i was getting pulled too far in one direction and it just started kind of became like uh you know everybody's doing the same shit i was like fuck that man I, we need to switch it up so you know and there wasn't there hadn't been a quote unquote like youth crew band in Philly since I don't, I literally don't even fucking know when. So I was like, all right, let's, let's try and, and do something different. That's kind of out of the ordinary for what's been going on around here and actually be a Philly straight edge band. Because I don't know the fucking last time there was, you know, a band of kids that actually lived in the city that was straight edge. Um, so yeah, that, that was just, you know, just sitting there being like, yo, it's just rip off chain and judge and whatever else and just start something different. It must have felt a lot different when you started getting that kind of more positive reaction while, you know, letdown was not as easily welcomed. Fuck no. They, they, they like, I mean, we had, you know, people that liked us off, off the jump and, uh, 
you know, it was early on cause it was right after mom. So like my voice, or it was kind of at the same time, but like my, I tried to do something different with my voice, just whatever, match the music. And like, I kept on blowing my voice out every show. So it was just, you know, there'd be people moshing and I couldn't even like speak words in between songs or anything, but there's definitely, it was funny kids that never wanted anything to do with me. Like, you know, kind of cool guide me in a way or just like, Oh, now, now it's acceptable to say what's up to you because you know, I know that you like killing time or whatever the fuck, you know what I mean? I'm like, I've always liked the same shit, man. Just because, you know, you, you have some crazy notion of me that I just am like this kind of person. So that was funny to see, you know, from the start. Cause I would just, they would try to say what's up to me or try to include me into their, you know, their club basically. And I'd be like, I don't want anything to do with you, man. Like I, I still want to listen to death threat marauder at home. I don't want anything to do with you. I feel like at this stage too, your your ability to play, your ability to hang out, all this different stuff is again lending back into the shows that you're putting out. And again, at this stage, as this is hardcore is growing, your insight and your um, consultation really played heavily into making sure that the right bands were represented and the right bands were still getting on the bill. And it, I, it definitely goes into what we're going to get into soon here, where from even the earliest outset, you had this, not this is driving this love, but you had this eye and this ear for things that you thought were cool, but also knew other people would enjoy, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Cause I remember talking to you about like, I think soul search and power trip getting on maybe that first year and, you know, power trips a band that, you know, we, I, I loved right when they started and I had somebody pick me up a shirt, like their first show. And I tried to put on for them as much as possible, you know, when, when, right when they started going. So I tried, you know, we would play with cool band. That's a good thing about touring too. Cause you know, we would play with band like beware, play with the band truth in Dallas. I ended up playing this is hardcore and, you know, playing the edge day show and all that. And uh, that was just a band that I saw live and I was like, this is fucking sick. You know what I mean? So it, being able to tour and play out and see other scenes and, and bands that were good in other scenes, I think was a big help in, in finding out other shit from outside the area that, you know, should play the area and should go off, you know? Now at what stage does the Florida move come into play? 2013, like the day or two after this is hardcore. That's right. That's right. So, this whole time you're, you're active. You're, you know, I mean, we, we probably can't talk about too many of our crazy ass adventures, but I mean, 2012 was a while. I'd actually think I ruined you in 2012, to be honest with you. I'm pretty sure I lost my mind that year. I was, I was <laughs> I, well, no, I think we both were out of our fucking minds. And yep. so in 2011, I was off house arrest for less than a single year and was arrested. And Bob Wilson came to the rescue and brought uh, money to my lawyer and met one of the craziest lawyers in the history of Philadelphia. <laughs> Still got his business card in my wallet 10 years later. 568-1300, Lucivino. <laughs> Probably should have that tattooed on me just out of disrespect for Lou. But um, you did this show and I, I you know, there's, there's a few words for it. You know I mean? Now, if we did the show, we'd have 10,000 kids just because I think Bad Seed or Title Fight, one of them bands played it. But uh, yeah, it's like a crazy show. You put it on for the benefit, and it really changed a lot of things for me because you're always you're always the man, but you know that really endeared 
me to you and that you were able to ride or die. And I think from that point forward, it was like, all right, like the time when we were driving to New Jersey and I said, yo, we'll go up to see Cro-Mags at that CBGB show or um, the CBCB festival. But I said, Hey, we got to start, we got to stop. I want to go to my, my dude and go get this armor thing. I think we bought the truck. Did we buy the truck in the early part of the day or something? Or I bought the truck that week, right? (laughs) I think it was that week. Yeah. Yeah. So we're driving up there and I'm like, Oh, we're getting pulled over. This is going to get bad. And you're like, nah, man, this will be good. I'm like, nah, there'll be multiple cars. Don't worry. This is going to get bad. <laughs> Do you want to tell the story? Or you want me to tell the story? I all I remember is there's four cop cars behind us, and you're like, <laughs> I was just like, all right, I don't know what the fuck's happening right now. So it wasn't criminal. It was just at that time, I think I owed five or six separate counties tickets from New Jersey, and when they got my ass, they were like, all right, fuck it, we're not letting this motherfucker leave. That's it. <laughs> and so Bob and Bob's got to drive the car. They got to put me in. Uh, the, the, no, did you have to drive the car or did we drive with them behind us? Which was it? I think we drove with them behind us. That's right. Uh, for a minute, I'm like, that's right. Cause I told you, I said, Bob, if they take me, go to my house. I have money in the drawer. <laughs> Give me instructions. You're like, I don't think it's going to be that bad. I'm like, Bob, you don't know. Then when the fourth car showed up, you're like, fuck. <laughs> and then we had to go to the police station. I had to pay this money. Otherwise they were going to put me in jail. <laughs> Literally not even six months after you uh, helped get me fucking lawyer money. <laughs> But, but that was just from years of being crazy in New Jersey with tickets and not paying. I was like, ah, it's New Jersey. What's going to happen? <laughs> and so we get back on the road and we're driving and I get a phone call that uh, shit just went downhill and uh, hardly <laughs> there's a stabbing and there's no show. Oh my, dude, the same. Fu- remember? Cause we were I fucking believe that was a show. Yeah. We were literally on our way to fucking do the God damn it, man. <laughs> I didn't realize it was, it was a like, fucking day. But you know how we finished it out, right? I truly, probably Lucky's Cheesesteak or some bullshit. Me, you, and Kev at Maggiano's. Oh, fuck. That was that night. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So we said a nice hot, <laughs> nice hot night. Enjoy Maggiano's downtown Philly because the stabbing at the... <laughs> and, I, um, I remember that was the same fucking day. So that was the year that was the first year of the first big, this is hardcore at the factory. And it was pure fucking chaos. And you know, it's, it's been kind of yada, 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 but in the time it went from letdown to just being a band that played the fest to Bob being someone that band had car bonds to play whenever they want it, wherever they want it in the fest. When we started having more things going on with the fest, Bob and his entire group of friends became integral to the setup and breakdown of this is hardcore and few things are crazier than when we're at the point where we have 20 something tents for this is hardcore and you guys are laying everything out every year. And that was a tradition that was built in there among many of the different traditions. But I mean, that entire year was nuts for us. I mean, we were fucking bowling till four thirty in the morning, gambling all the time. <laughs> just that was literally my source of income for like five months. I would just yeah, like, literally just killing it at bowling. <laughs> two hundred clubs. If you bowled two hundred, you got two hundred bucks from everybody that said they'd be down. So I'd come out there like six hundred bucks. Make that last for a couple of weeks until the next bowling trip. Eat, wait outside McDonald's for the four thirty opening like a fucking crumb. <laughs> 
fucking Christ. So we were both living like fucking complete jerk offs <laughs> as probably like one of the greatest things. Like the beginning of a shift for me was really fucking really something different, man. Like I, I still to this day, I can't believe that that was like the shift and, and my life was chaotic. And this is when, you know, without you, I don't know where I would be at because I feel like you were like, literally riding shotgun through so many crazy things that we were up to. And then um, to the point where you would eventually work with me and bubble. (laughs) So John from blacklisted gets this work, this construction work. And at the time I was really just, let's just put it as I was out of my fucking mind. I'm out of my fucking mind. And we decided to work for this company bubble. And He's like the lowest, the lowest tier of construction possible and start out with me and Bob on a roof in the suburbs, legitimately hand tools, cutting a roof down in a giant, um, what it, what was an auto shop and is now an auto shop again. And, in what do you think that was like six, seven weeks? Yeah, it was whatever that winter was when it was the fucking coldest I've ever been in my life. And we're up on this roof and you have like Ogden's there sometime. Everyone's coming in and helping out little by little, but it was the most sketchy, dangerous shit physically possible. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's why I laugh when you're like, yeah, I got out of here right around then. It was like, I almost feel worried that I kind of drove you crazy enough that you're like, I got to get the fuck out of (laughs) here. Like it was little. A burnt down gas station that needed to be torn down, kind of just going, like just kind of going for it, not really, not truly any plans with it. Having to take all the tile out of the fucking disgusting ass bathroom. Oh my God, I forgot about the tile. <laughs> it was just fucking not getting paid. When you get paid, it was like $7 an hour. Yeah, it was just fucking, it was pretty grim. So there's, there's a lot of reasons why Bob had a, change the scenery so to speak and you ended up in florida and um so much i was so worried for you in rome regard and at the same time is i it changed the entire trajectory for you because then you were able to kind of see things from a different perspective you were meeting new people you were in a completely different scenario and um just uh you know Talk us through it, like the changes and whatever. Yeah, just you know, I uh, I had never lived outside of you know like a thirty five minute radius from the city, basically. Like I lived in Doylestown and then suburb and then Philly. That's all I ever lived at. I was like, oh, it's be a nice change of pace. You know what I mean? Like no fucking bullshit winters. Uh, kind of just get to seems less stressful to fucking be down there. There's enough hardcore down there to keep me happy, and I like the kids down there and all that. So I went into it with. I was just like, you know, I wasn't like, oh, man, this is going to suck. I was like, I, I this would be good for me probably. Like, who knows how long I'll be down there. I think the original plan is to be down there for a year and then move back just to, you know, to switch it up. And then I was down there and then it was, a lot of it was self-imposed, but I was just very, like, if I were to just hit up the kids, I ended up becoming, becoming really good friends with, like the Rob Goodspeeds and the Carters of the world and all them. I probably would have been less miserable, but... I would just sit at home all the time, fucking hitting up my friends from home, talking to them all the time, like doing whatever and not really, uh, not really extending myself too much or trying to integrate myself too much. Cause I felt like 
you know, I was like, I'm not trying to just become this guy's like, Oh, I live here now. So I'm your friend. You know what I mean? Like, so I, uh, I spent a lot of time by myself and, and, uh, I should have been doing other stuff than, than what I was doing, but I was just kind of just in my own, I didn't think I would have this kind of reaction living down there, but I was insanely depressed. Like I didn't realize that at the time, but looking back, I'm like, Holy fuck, man. Like I don't know how to fucking blow my head off. So, you know, it was, it was cool in theory for a change. And then after about a year of living down there, I kind of started opening up with shit and then becoming friends with, with people better and hanging out with everybody and all that. And then, uh, so it's kind of like a butterfly effect. It's like, you know, on one hand, I probably should have just stayed around here. But on the other hand, it's like, well, moving down there introduced me to a lot of my really good friends and people like Carter who does from within and, and, you know, has a huge part in hardcore now. And the people I became friends with down there kind of led to everything that's happening right now. And then, you know, the, a lot of the Florida kids became really good friends with the Philly kids. So there's like a bond there. And then, you know, people will be coming off for shows and, you know, everybody goes down to FYA and hangs out and all that stuff. So it was, you know, it was hard living down there, but at the end of the day, like I am glad that, you know, for, even if it wasn't the greatest for me, I think for the greater good of all my friends and, you know, bands and all that shit, like, I was willing to, I'm, I'm glad I was there, you know, even if it sucked for, for me personally, because I was, you know, so in my own head about everything that, you know, I'm glad that it ended up working out the way it did. Everything, I hate to be corny, but like everything happens for a reason, Bob, but that's what it is. Everything happens for a reason. And I think it's the kind of person that you are and the kind of, it's interesting. You don't have walk into a room and make everybody happy kind of charisma but everybody that you're friends with loves you. Yeah. And everybody that you put time into knows they can count on you. But, you know, especially in this stage when you're not a young little jerk off, you're an older, you're an older Bob, you know, like, you know, people you're, you are, it's interesting, sociable. And yet still there, there has to be uh, someone to start the conversation off, you know? Yeah, And so I could see you being like, I don't know if I really want to walk over and have this conversation. But I mean, as we talked about in the last episode, what you did with FYA and the friendships you made with good speed, which obviously brought you malice at the palace, <laughs> you know, the sickest name for a band that I had, a, I had a Google that I'm like, oh, wait, that's why you fucking jock. <laughs> <laughs> but so much changed and you were able to give hardcore such a different look. The same way we were talking about how you influenced Philadelphia through the suburbs into integrating Philadelphia hardcore. Like, it's a huge part of your place in this world is kind of filling voids. And I, and again, like I've said this a million times on my shows, and I know you heard it. It's like, I don't know what to do with my life. The same way I don't think I know you know, don't know what to do with your life. We just do hardcore. Yep. And there's a part of me that always like says, like, is Bob sitting there going, when is this motherfucker just going to get out of my way? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and instead you go to Florida on your own impetus for, you know, just cause you know, we're cutting roofs down in 25 degree weather and the car that you have gets sideswiped and, <laughs> and you're having like the worst run of bad luck. And we're, you're literally living off gambling on bowling. <laughs> it's just like a crazy life. <laughs> and yet, you go to Florida and you don't go to like Miami beach. You go to fucking Pensacola, which is basically Kensington beach. <laughs> <laughs> much yet, better sand, but yeah. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, better sand, but not too much else. 
And in such short time, you take something that was never seen as totally fertile and you create FYA, which turns into the start of our calendar year in hardcore. It's fucking fantastic, man. It's fucking fantastic. And um, we talked about it last week or last episode rather about the impetus to why you started it and the impetus to and the inertia that grew from it. But were you ever on the fence about moving back up here or were you always thinking at some point, I got to move back up, up where where I'm at. So after a year, you know, whatever happened, happened. I was like, well, I could just go right back up, but that's kind of like a bitch ass move. So I was like kind of out of spite. I'm going to stay down here for another year. And you know, not just, you know, tuck my tail between my legs and be like, well, well, you know, that didn't work out. So I'm just going back home. You know what I mean? So I, uh, stayed around and then I didn't know how long I wanted to live there, but I knew I at least had to like be there for at least a little bit longer, just so it wasn't just like a one and done kind of thing. So, you know, I think I probably stayed down there a little longer than I wanted to, but you know, I really liked the kids I hung out with all down there. Um, and it's you know Pensacola is awesome. Like at the end of the day, like I literally love that that place. But uh, yeah, I wasn't really in a rush to get back here just because I didn't know what the fuck I was gonna do once I was back. And so you know, I kind of was just waiting and seeing. And then at a certain point, you know, I hit up Carl or probably him, and I was just like, "Yo, like if I move back up, you got a spot I can stay." And then uh, say so that's why I ended up just moving back. What um, what do you think? about the differences between we're talking now more than a 10 year difference between when we, when letdown really starts rolling. Now you're back in Philly. FYA is a thing. You're on your fifth band or fourth, uh, fourth band. Yeah. Malice at the palace. Again, you're playing, this is hardcore and you're ripping it, <laughs> you know, um, your shows continue to improve here. And you are now um, a force to reckon with in the fact that you've got this festival that helps shape and curate the sound that people will take on and run with. And it's got to be an interesting way to look, zoom out and go, wow, all that happened in 10 years. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty fucking crazy to think about, like... I feel like most people probably saw us when we came through on tour, played a show, and then like, I'll probably never see that kid again. Like, that's just some random fucking psychopath or whatever. So I think it is funny, the people that have actually stuck around for a while, that, you know, the person who does all this shit is that dipshit, you know what I mean, with, like, the cut the shit shirt that was just fucking bleeding on people and kicking people in the face or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely weird to think about sometimes. Like, I, I don't really think too hard about it, but it is because in my head, I'm still the same exact person. Like, I just I'm not gonna go and like pick fights with people or some crazy shit. But like, I'm still the same person I was when I was like 18 years old for the most part to me. So, yeah, it is just like a weird, weird dynamic that you know I became whatever the fuck I am with what I do. You know, no, I, I relate heavily to that. Um... One thing I, I didn't know where to place in the in the storyline because it's a deeper Bob Wilson thing, but is there anything that you think you acted differently when your father passed? Um, I think like I don't know, man. It it definitely fucked me up because 
you know, there, there's a lot going on with it. Like, all right, he, his dad was 47 when he died and he was 23. My dad died when he was 47 and I was 23. So just like little shit like that kind of fuck with me mentally. And then, uh, you know, I remember we had a conversation right around that time when, for whatever, we weren't really talking that much. And then you're like, damn, I didn't even know your fucking dad. Like, my, my, my dad just died too. Like, you know what I mean? And then I was like, fuck, man, that's like, you know, we were friends before that or whatever, but obviously, but I was just like, we're both kind of going through shit at the same time a little bit. Neither of us knew it. So we didn't really talk to each other about it until like way afterwards. Cause I, I remember us talking about it like probably that summer or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. It was like, it definitely fucked me up like a lot because I didn't want to be anywhere around here at, at when, after he died, like we played UB like five days later, probably or something like that. And I just remember being out of my fucking mind. And then what, I think year, I, did it, what year was that that you played UB? Oh, nine. So he died like March 19th. We played like the 27th or whatever. Fuck. I remember my father died the Sunday morning after UB 2009. Oh shit. Yeah. So yeah, literally like a week, a week and a half apart probably. Yeah. Legitimately. I, um, <laughs> drove down with Jude in my boy from SCA's car. Could only stay for one of the shows because my friend was getting knighted in New Jersey. So I drove down, seeing a bunch of bands, did some moshing, nearly got into a fight Made out with a babe, only make out. <laughs> Drove up back in the rain, no windshield wipers, 100 miles an hour to get to New Jersey in time to see my friend get knighted. Woke up, and my mom was like, hey, uh, your dad did pass last night. And um, I was like, all right, I got to get up. Just, you know, leave me alone. <laughs> and that was uh, three and a half months before I went on house arrest. Jesus Christ. And there were so many crazy, like my life was fucking insanely 2000. I think to that, and this is where I was getting at for me, I think 2011 when I got arrested and this shit wasn't even for anything I was involved in. And that threw my entire life in a, in a already a spin. And I was already trying to level out and be normal and get my life together. And then that happened. And so I feel like me and your 2011 into 2012, was like the emotional tailspin that we didn't deal with the fact that our dads died. Yeah. I mean, all that checks out. You know what I mean? Like I, it was like, so he, yeah, he fucking died. And then we, we toured a bunch that year, like summer, all summer. And then all fall, I think that was like the comeback kid tour we did or whatever. And yeah, it was. I was just, I was glad not to be home. Cause uh, I mean, when he died, I was living with these just fucking maniacs. And I didn't have like, you know, my door didn't have a lock on it and like all this shit. We didn't have hot water. We didn't have, it was just a fucking shit show. And then I was like, I don't really know if it can get worse than this. Like, I'm just like, yeah, my fucking sitting here. My sister found him dead in the fucking basement. Janice had to drive me home. It was the most awkward car ride of my life. Cause I was hanging out with everybody when I found out and I'd be like, yo, can you drive me home? My dad just died. Just kind of just want to hang out. And then, uh, that led to a bunch of crazy family shit where, my sister like turned my whole family on me and she stole a bunch of money from me. So like that, like two year period, like kind of, you know, I was always an asshole and I was always a dickhead to people, but I kind of felt like I was a little less of an asshole after that. Cause I was like, not like a broken person, obviously, but I was kind of just like mentally just fatigued from 
all the crazy shit in like the two year period. You know what I mean? Like, so that's what, yeah, that's, that makes sense. Why when we started chilling a lot and fucking doing whatever the fuck we were doing, it was definitely just shit that I'd never, you know, got to deal with at the time. Well, that's, I mean, that's literally what, that's literally what it was. It was like the chaos factor of the not worrying. Like there was no long-term plan for any of this, No, you know? Yep. And, um, probably if I was a if I was more like the John Bose or the Sam Triple B, probably could have turned this as hardcore into some like giant corporation empire thing. But you know we were winging this. <laughs> you know, we literally were winging every aspect. You know, and like you were there you were there through so much of this winging on my end, you know. Um fuck. You know, you guys were there when I moved into the house. You guys were there when we moved into the next house and we shot that crazy fugitive. <laughs> and then, you know, you were there when I moved into the third house in like a fucking year. And um, one of the things that I know to be true about you is that I can call you at 3.30 in the morning and tell you the hardest thing I have to say to you. And you go, oh, fuck. All right, man. And then you always got, you always have this quiet, you never jump into the conclusion. Like, all right, man. And it's soothing. And it's under, like, I, I can get it off my chest. Like, all right, I told Bob. It's <laughs> off my chest. And um, I just wanted to bring the dad thing up because I think when, you, when we talk about being chaotic and we talk about the recklessness, it's not, we're not rich kids. You know, we have nothing, actually. And I think at certain points in time when people who have nothing or, or not like a, I'm going to go and shoot everybody, but like, I don't even know what I want to do next month. Like it's these shows, it's the shows that we do. It's our friends. It's this music that really drives a lot of the linear progression of our lives. Like, well, I can't kill myself. I got this show coming up or, you know, FY, you know, like, and that's what I wanted to get to in your darkest days. I know that you were also, creating some of the most productive and amazing shit man that's what i mean it's fucked up that you say that because i was kind of driving around the other day and like i don't have a fucking death clock in my head i'm not like oh we got 11 years and, and three months until i'm also dead and i'm 47 you know what i mean but like that shit does play into a lot of you know what i think about on a daily basis i'm like well i mean what's the worst that can happen i got another 12 years of being miserable what the fuck ever who cares but uh and I was sick and I was like, you know, when I was booking some other shows after FYA and like trying to, to get new bands for some shit and other stuff, I was like, I wonder if other people kind of just give themselves stuff to do to make sure they're around for it. Cause I was like, well, if I died tomorrow, then I wouldn't be around to, to pay people out of FYA. And then I have to like entrust Kev Hare to do that. And that'll be a fucking disaster. So it's like, you know, you, you fucking give yourself things to look forward to to have some kind of like as corny as it is like purpose. You know what I mean? It's just like, well, if I keep doing this, then I can't do what I want to do. You know what I mean? So yeah, I, I kind of had like a similar thought recently. No, I, um, you know, I, we're, we're different in the way that because I had kids that I had to have some semblance of normality or I would have fucking even lost it further. And that, little bit of having kids left me to have to do the things like the concrete stuff and all, because I don't think I would have been good. Like I would, 
I would not have been as good. And even that year that I said, fuck it. And that was the fuck it year was hard emotionally, physically, mentally. And it is <laughs> the same year that I'm working on. This is hardcore at the factory, <laughs> you know, and we're, we're staying up late at night and shooting this stupid movie. And I'm talking about these like grandiose plans as a way to not just feel something, but also to like have something positive to look forward to. Yeah. And it doesn't, not the, not the cast, like, like, you know, not cast a light on this, but that's the thing about you is, is like your, this whole story nothing's been easy for the Robert Taylor Wilson part of your life. The, you know, this like me with the, you know, the Joe McKay stuff isn't as fun as the Joe hardcore stuff. Yep. And yet it's the stuff that you put into action the way that you, who the fuck else would be best friends with Kevin Hare? <laughs> Let's be real. Who the fuck would, who the fuck else would like, like, we all have these crazy groups of friends and now all of our friends are kind of in like link. I mean, like, you know, like when the fuck else would we have Brian say John and Joe McHenry sitting across from Matt Carl and Kevin Hare. Right? I look around sometimes and I'm just like, dude, the people that kind of, I brought into the fold and you know, that, that's just, you know, on their own volition. And it's like with your, with your squad, some like fucking, you know, Mike's 4th of July party, just seeing oh. interacting. I was like, dude, it's just, if you take, if you pull back a little bit and just look at what the fuck's going on, this is the craziest combination of human beings on the planet. And it's just, it cracks me up to like, if I stop and think about it for too long. Well, that's, that's kind of what I was like reaching at. Cause you know, a lot of, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show is specific individuals and their achievements and their motivations. And since we know each other very well, there also is a thing that both of us have in common is that we have like the Howard Stern had like the whack pack. You know, like we end up with this crazy group of friends that are around us to support us, to help us. But then there's always, you'll tell me about like some side mission story that happened with Kevin or this Matt Carl thing, you know, like, yeah. or this Marty getting hurt. And when you're telling about the Marty always getting hurt at every FYA, you know, like no matter what crazy shit that we have going on show wise, and either I'm helping you or you're helping me, it's always the other people that are involved that add color to the scenario. And it's just another way that you and I are linked, but also like another way that like the Bob Wilson story, isn't just Bob, it's his friends. You know, it's, it's the, the nicest human being in the world. AC Andrew accordingly, you know, it's taking some fucking backwater yokel like Carter from Alabama and, you know, turning that motherfucker into, you know, potentially the next big hardcore record label guy, you know, like you, you have this heart and this ability to attract these people to you. And so many of them shine because you're behind them and pushing them. No one else would push Keith into doing <laughs> payback. No one else would be friends with uh fucking Anthony Marinaro that long, you know, like there's all these different things about the people that you're intimately around. And I mean, like, you guys religiously still do each other's birthdays. Remember you guys, you remember you used to bully me and make me come out like, here, I'm going out here. Remember that time you made me go and jump off the cliff and I almost threw up. <laughs> like that's the kind of shit you're like, Oh, Joe, you're super depressed on the couch. All right. You're coming cliff diving with us. You know, like there's something special about how you interact with your friends and this like tight knit group that you pull around yourself. 
because there's so much chaos in your real life, I think that you need the support of your friends, but also your friends love being around you because of all the shit that you bring with the, the ideas and the, just the everything that you bring, man. Yeah. I just, you know, I like, I like seeing my friends succeed and shine, you know, especially like if I look specifically the Carter, I know how much that kid actually loved hardcore and how much he gave a shit. Like a lot of the Pensacola kids, like, you know, fucking Lennon, like all those kids, like South Florida. And, you know, if I, if something I can do because I'm friends with whoever, you know, I, I can do this for them. If I can fucking do that and put them out there and let them succeed. Like I'd much rather, I take much more pleasure in seeing my friends succeed than, you know, myself, like, couple years ago you're like yo mat want to matp want to play this hardcore i'm like no put invoke on like i'd rather i want them to get some shine i had enough like i don't fucking need the attention or whatever you know what i mean so i just i like getting people together i like i'm good at organizing things and you know getting people in the same room and all that shit i'm not the most fun person to be around but i'll be behind the scenes getting them you know to be around each other so they can enjoy it you know what i mean like so i yeah i like doing all that shit well, there's a magnetism there and and you're exactly right. Like you have a different way of how you interact with your friends, but it was most evident at FYA when the whole team was out. You got Wolk, you got Scanlon, you got Abbott, you got, like, you know, like <laughs> pulled us into this mix. Like it's <laughs> fucking great, man. It was like, and everybody was in the same thing, like whatever's best for Bob, whatever makes Bob's weekend easier. Yeah. As you're walking around like you're about to climb Mount Everest with a giant backpack on <laughs> running miles around the fest for fucking th- two days. <laughs> you know, there's a, something about the way that you interact with people that they are endeared to you because they know it'll come back tenfold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I just try to do I try to treat others. You know what I mean? Like as, as cliche as it is, like how I want to be treated, like. Uh, if I can help you out in any capacity and like make your life easier or do things to make your band bigger or better or get you on better shows, you know, I'm going to fucking do that every time. You know, like this is hardcore. If I can make your life any easier than it, than it already is at the fucking on the weekend, you know, shows, whatever, like just in your general life, like, you know, I feel like early on I saw from, from a, a far away perspective a little bit, I saw a lot of hangers on, I saw a lot of people just trying to cozy up so they could, you know, be in with the squad and do whatever, but they didn't actually have your best interest in mind or, or give a fuck about you at the end of the day. So when we became better friends, you know, I, I just treat you like, you know, any other friend I've had for, for however long I have, like, I'm like, dude, I, I actually give a fuck about this person. I hope, you know, things I can do can make them their life easier in some way or, you know, more enjoyable. So, you know, that's why anytime you fucking call, I'll fucking pick up. Anytime you text, I'll fucking drive over, do whatever. Just because, you know, you you are a great person and you deserve people that actually give a fuck. You know what I mean? So not to get too uh, too lovey-dovey on here, but I truly do give a shit about you, you know? I'm going to tell you that I have a lot of friends in this world. I have very few people who are selflessly able to say to me, hey, I know that you don't see this, but this person's doing this. And at first I was like, I don't, Oh wait, fuck. Because, you know, we don't have the best peripheral vision at times. Yeah. And it's that care, you know, it's that, it's that there are people, we know many of them who place their position or place themselves in the proper position 
for their own advancement. And so I, I, lo- I really, really appreciate it. The many times where you've come to me and been like, Hey man, you know, I know you don't see this person's actions, what they are, but, and I need that because at times I don't see it and I needed that, you know? Um, and it just shows one more side of you where you're able to say that. And I know that it's coming from a true place of what's in my best interest. And in time, I've really learned to not be like, no, no, no. But I, which at the beginning I was. And now I'm like, nah, that checks out. You're fucking right. That checks out. And so, you know, as we keep talking in circles about like good friends and crazy shit, it's, it's growing up in hardcore. It's growing up and going from being the chaotic person that rubs people the wrong way or does things their way and people don't like it. And you're, 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 as a kid say with a story arc, your story arc continues to where you're like, I'm not a hardcore kid. I'm a hardcore man now. Like you are the man behind FYA and you have created not unlike the back to back world, but like you created a new world around the good speeds, the Scanlins, the fucking Carters, the Lennons. And it's like this next super group of humans that are just around you constantly trying to elevate hardcore in the most positives of directions. And I feel like a lot of times when people join forces in hardcore, it's not to do what's good for third parties. It's how do we make the most out of this? Mm. And instead I feel like you have done such an amazing job of making it about what you said about making more people check out this band because they're cool or, Hey, everybody's over here listening to disembodied. So I'm going to be over here doing this. Like, you always have your ability with the people that you now have. And they're like on the extended FYA team. Like it's, you know, like it's an, it's a new era for all these newer labels. And I mean, even you, now you got your own tape label, the ball still keeps rolling for you. And I have to wonder if you ever question like, fuck, why do I keep doing all this extra shit? And you know, where's your position in your head where you're not checking yourself, but you're understanding some of the subconscious moves that you make to help everybody kind of come up together. I, uh, I mean, I was talking to somebody recently about it and like, yo man, and they're like, yo, you've, you've done bands, you've done shows, you've done a fest. You started doing, doing releases and stuff like that. You know, you pretty much ran the gamut of what a hardcore kid can do. And I just honestly want to do more. Like I I'm, finishing up that, that zine of like, you know, shit from around here that I, I really fucked with. I think more people should know about because I never did a zine because I'm not artistically inclined at all or anything like that. You know, I'm doing some records with the label and all that shit. So if anything, I just want to keep pushing and, and, and keep doing more. Um, you know, at least I can't see myself ever not giving a fuck. So as long as I still give a fuck, I'm going to keep trying to do as much as I possibly can. And, you know, uh, we talk about all the time, like a, like a Highlander kind of moment. Like if there's a younger kid that comes along and says, yo, your show is fucking suck. I'm going to do this. Like you can't do shit about it. I would be like, okay, yeah. If you're, that's what your fucking thing is, you go right ahead. But, uh, as until that happens, you know, I'm going to keep trying to do the shows I do and, and bring the bands in that I bring in. And, uh, yeah, like I said, yeah, just keep on trying to do as much as I possibly can while I can. Is there ever been a moment where you've had a regret about not trying to monetize more of your own things in hardcore to be able to just be like, 
fuck you. This is all I do. Like, I know a lot of times there's, we've talked about this privately, how sometimes the most DIY people are the least likely to cut the bands off their fair share. And um, we think a lot alike on this. So I'd like you to kind of ex- expand on it for me. Nah, man, I like, uh, like in the last five years, I think I got paid for like one show. You know what I mean? Like, cause there have been benefits or just, you know, one-offs or whatever. I don't, I don't need the fucking you know hundred dollars or whatever. I'd rather, you know, especially cause it's been mostly benefits. I'd rather just help out whoever needs to be fucking helped out and all that. So yeah, I don't need the money, um, with that shit. And I just feel weird. Otherwise I think, uh, as far as doing shows and, and fest and all that shit, you know, if, if you do a show and it's a local fucking, you know, I pay local every fucking time, unless they tell me, give the money to the touring band or give this money to whoever, you know, as I think, you know, cause we both played in bands and actually, you know, toured and did all this shit. We, we understand it, you know, better than people who just decided to start booking shows or whatever. But, you know, I've been in bands where we got paid fucking $7 and 50 cents at the end of the show. Like, you know, we brought 50 people. I, we got, I don't remember ever getting paid at a show in Doylestown. You know what I mean? At the time I was, I just thought it was like normal. And I was like, wait a minute, what the fuck? Like there's 150 kids here. We're playing like, we're not getting any money. So I always, uh, I try to hook people up as much as I can and just make sure everybody's taken care of before I'm taken care of. You know what I mean? I think being a promoter or being whatever, being in a band, I think you should be the last person taken care of, you know, and then just, especially if it's like younger kids that are helping the scene out and like bringing out the the new squad and, you know, the, the next wave kind of like, I want them to feel appreciated and, you know, not just like, oh yeah, you guys are our fucking, you know, you, you guys are just here to help us out and we don't really care what happens to you. I want everybody to come away from shows or fest or whatever, feeling good about it. You know? What, what's something that really is important to me is that you play, an integral role in two sides of a coin that I've never seen happen before. You, I mean, and we talked about it a lot on the last episode. We talked about the FYA announcement. You are a ferocious demo collector, listener. You got your, you, you might as well be the fucking uh, KGB. You know, a demo is going to drop before it's even totally done recorded. <laughs> you know, you got the ear to the street and then some, but yet, because of the way that you grew up in hardcore and the bands and the, the complete crazy with, like, I mean, it's way wider than what I like. You love everything from dead stop to fucking, and I'll use the term we talked about in the last episode. You love every band from dead stop to dismay and everything in between. And, you know, because of that, you guys, and I say you guys as a collective groups, you guys made crutch back something that people were really all about mm-hmm. you guys put respect on names brand new names like we talked about how you know you saw shackled and like hey let's give him a shot there's just so much giving from you i wonder what in your fucking head makes you be able to pick out some of these things like is there is there a formula you know like uh obviously in the movie casino, the guy was a great handicapper. You're like the hardcore handicapper. <laughs> You're like, all right, you, you can pick out what's going to win, what's going to hit. And I, I've always, I've always teased you about it. I've teased on the show a million times and, you know, but like, what do you think gets you, gets you focused enough to be able to kind of have 
a great sense of what will be cool, what is cool, and how do you feel about your influence in keeping names that were important to you fresh and younger people? Um, I think it's a couple things like, you know, I'll take shots on if I see a, like a, a kid in a pit for every fucking band, every show, if, if they're at every show, if, if I feel like they truly give a shit about what's currently going on and they're not just being in a band to be in a band, you know, I'll at the bare minimum, give them a shot and then, and see what's up with them. Like, you know, I got burned plenty of times in you know, 2008 to 2011, probably by kids I thought were all about shit and just kind of fucking end up spitting on my face and just, you know, I, I helped them out so much and they decided they didn't give a fuck anymore and wanted to do it hardcore. So I try not to be uh, shell shocked from that. You know what I mean? And like, and, and realize that, you know, there is younger kids that this really means everything to them. And, you know, if, when I was younger, there's people that, you know, booked us and, and fucking helped me out when I know I, I gave a fuck like 200% about what I was doing. So I want to definitely pay that forward as much as I can. Like, I try not to realistically, if a band, you know, sneak disses, you know, hardcore kids or, you know, shows are like this or Philly in general, like I don't even give them the fucking time of day. I don't really give a fuck about helping them out. But, you know, if, if I see you actually caring about what's going on and you're at my shows, you're at your shows, you know, I think that's a big part of it. Um, as far as older shit, I fucking hated when I moved back, I feel like there was kids who were at Jesus peace shows and that was the end all be all for them. And, you know, I like Jesus peace a lot and they were a big part of Philly and like, you know, moving Philly forward, but there was shit that came before them and there's going to be shit after them. And I don't want kids to think, I think two things. I think kids should want to make what's going on currently as good as possible. And I respect the fuck what came before us shit. Let's do our own thing, carve our own path. But I think you should have a healthy respect for the shit that, you know, an understanding that there's things that happened before you that led you to be able to do the things you do and the bands, you know, I mean, going back to fucking like brick house, you know what I mean? Like why die fucking, you know, the mid nineties shit with the, you know, freight train in the late nineties and all that stuff. You know, there is, I wish more people, you know, the reason I fucking pump those bands up so much and, you know, try to talk to them as much as possible. Cause it's like, you know, Philly never had a million bands. They're all super popular, but this did exist. Shows did exist you know, they were cool. And the people that are around today are a big part of the reason, you know, are, are from that. And that's a big part of the reason why you are here in general. So, you know, when, when I try to, to learn some motherfuckers on some shit, you know, from before, that's just me. Cause when I was got into shit, I was just obsessed with, Oh fuck. Like, Oh, this dark weather record. Like that's just in the dollar bin at fucking Siren records. All right. What the hell is this? Fucking hung that shit on my fucking wall, like printed out the fucking lyrics, like a fucking weirdo. Like, I just always was real proud of where we are seen in general and like the surrounding areas. And I wish that, you know, younger kids realized that there was a ton of cool shit, you know, prior to this and paid attention, you know? Well, it's, it's exactly, you're, you're dead a double-edged sword that you swung there. And, and I think it's cool. Yeah. There is a kill your idols, not the band, but the idea like, you know, we don't, we we're carving our own path, but let's be fucking real here. You're carving a path especially now, 40 years after the fact, we're carving paths with weapons and tools that someone else made. And we're carving paths that are not unlike, it's not like someone's creating something that hasn't been done before. Mm -hmm. They might be taking a touch on it and they might be adding their own thing. But like you, I find myself agitated at the least 
about people who are younger, who they don't find something new. They find something that's happened and they're like, they make a big deal. And it's like, yeah, that already happened before. It's like very hard to come up with new ideas and hardcore, mm-hmm. but that's where the beauty of where you come back in, where you're like now people are more in touch with bands that came before. Sometimes I think because of the internet and the algorithms, like I said, a band that played fucking 10 shows like, yo man built upon frustration is cool. But you know what? Historically, not that many people fucking knew about them. Mm-hmm. So when you see a meme, that's like, if these four bands played, it would be insane. It's like, depending on what year and what city, most of the bands at certain times weren't respected anywhere besides where they fucking played. Yeah. And people love a band, but they don't understand how that band interlocks with the entire timeline. And it's one of my biggest pet peeves. So I love when you're putting on for both sides, the new up and coming, the old, you know, the old guard and shedding light. And, and, you know, me and you feel the same way on the Philly stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, Do you think in your entire timeline that we spoke on, is there anything that you really, that doesn't sit well with you that you did like a regret? I don't even want to use the term regret. Cause when I say regret, people, I don't have regret. <laughs> so if I say it a different way, they're like, Oh yeah. Well, you know, is there something that, that sits with you that you would have liked to have done differently? Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, basically like the, the whole Europe shit, I don't regret it. But I wish I chose my words better and kind of, instead of just being, very blunt about it, explain why I was so salty afterwards. Um, but that's not really a regret. That's just like, I, I was doing it on purpose because I was pissed off, but I wish that I would just chill the fuck out and not done it. Uh, other than that, I mean, I don't, I don't think I have any regrets, honestly. I don't really, everything I did, I, I, I meant, you know what I mean? So. I think that that's a big part of that. We all grow up. You, you find yourself saying like, I obviously wouldn't say, and not for the cancellation part, but like, I wouldn't say things the same way because I don't have that same level of angst. And I understand now better how when we communicate this way, people may take us in a different light than if they understood how we really mean, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about everything that you did, which of your bands do you think that you miss playing with the most? And what's the band if someone asked you to play that you would say no fucking way? Um, honestly, when when Letdown really started doing shit and I kind of found my way, like, you know, during sets and stuff like that, I, that was like the most fun I've ever had in my life, you know, at a hardcore show. And, you know, I can never replicate that or get that feeling back for sure. But that was that was probably my favorite time being in a band. Uh, I would do any set. I don't really, I, I would actually never do let down again after the alone in the crowd show. But uh, yeah, I'll do, you know, if somebody, if mom can get together tomorrow and play show, I would absolutely fucking be there. I don't sit there and, and fucking grovel with them to play shows. You know what I mean? But if the opportunity came up, I, I would definitely do it. So I'll, I'll never say never for anything. I think that the, the important thing here is that, And it sucks. I think when you were most, I won't say most excited, but when you were freshest and I relate to this heavily with punishment where it's like when you're the most naive and you're most excited, it's when the world breaks your heart the most, you Mm -hmm. know? And that's where that letdown feeling comes, you know, with the band letdown, not the letdown. (laughs) But, um, 
as you grow into things and you do, you've done more bands than I have, you know, the the same cycle continues. So it's fun, but it's never going to be as fun as that first time. Yeah, exactly. Like I love the process of being in a band, like a new band, like, like getting together, doing a demo, playing a first show, maybe doing like a record or whatever. Like, I, I love that, uh, you know, just that's the very base of hardcore. You know what I mean? Like, I know people start bands and right away they want to fucking book a tour or do a record right away or something like that. But I like the real, like, beginnings, like the, the most DIY aspects of, of being in a new band. Now, we'll go back one more thing with the DIY stuff. How do you see FYA continuing to be DIY while still trying to maintain a level just big enough that you're not in the conundrum where we were at, where we were selling out so fucking early that people that legitimately wanted to come couldn't get in. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, you know, there's so many, because there's always going to be newer bands that I asked to play that aren't on the level yet of needing, you know, a manager or an agent or whatever. Like I try to deal with that as minimally as possible, obviously, you know, me, um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think if it got any, any less DIY than what it is now, I'd be pretty bummed on it because that's just not what I enjoy about doing a fest. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I could just literally just deal with managers and agents all day and have them fill out the lineup for me. And I would, you know, the fest would do well, but I would just feel, I love agonizing for six months about what, you know, what band to put on. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I don't ever want to not have that feeling. I can relate heavily to that. <laughs> I can relate heavily to that. Now, um, the thing that I find most interesting of this whole entire conversation is just that you definitely have the dark side of your own personal life. And then this bright side that comes from the successes of hardcore. And I understand integrally how they you know, balance out. Cause that's a lot of how I live, but because we talked about your timeline and your father passing, is there ever anything in your head that makes you go like, wait, what the fuck? I've got X amount of time left. I need to do something more than am I doing? Or do you think that at this stage in your life and how much you've done that you find the things that you do to be the validating things in your life? Um, yeah, I kind of feel like I, I settled into, you know, the things I actually enjoy doing and I try to do them, you know, I fucking like during basketball season, obviously I'll just fucking be home every fucking night watching every fucking game. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, there's people that probably spend a lot of time doing, this is a big part of me just probably still being insanely immature, but you know, not just sucking it up and, and just doing things that I hate doing just because I feel like that's what you're supposed to do as you get older. You know what I mean? So I try to do the things I actually like doing as much as possible and, you know, even if they're not the greatest uses of my time, you know, I'll, I'll still be, you know, just watching, watching sports, fucking booking shows, doing whatever, you know. Now, there's one thing certain is that the ball is always rolling for you. And I can relate again. There's so much. We could probably spend a whole hour and a half just talking about Kevin Hare, Matt Carl, Marty side stories. And maybe we'll have we'll have to have a whole crew episode. Where we just like make fun and joke and tell old stories. But. I absolutely love everything that we talked about today. And I don't even know what else we could really touch on between the fact that we had the FYA announcement episode 
and now we've delved deep. Is there something that I didn't touch on that you thought I should have in this episode? Uh, no, I think the only things like last, so last episode I misspoke and I forgot to include Scanlan in the FYA squad and I'm a piece of shit for that. No, 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 that's incorrect. Did I actually? I said, you got, you got, and you said Scanlan. I said, that's a good dress. That's a, uh, best dressed fucking dude there. We did talk about Scanlan. I called him best dressed. Cause he does. I am so bad with actual, you know. Uh, big boy show things. So if I need to send an offer out to a band like pretty quick, I'm like, yo, here's information. Can you literally type this up and send it to me? And he's like, bro, I've shown you how to do this like 10 times. I'm like, yeah, and I, I still don't understand. So if you could do this to me, that'd be great. So he's, he's always been a huge help, at least in the last few years with, you know, all the, the adult sides of, you know, doing the hardcore shit. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, kind of going back to what we we're talking about earlier, you know, after the This Is Hardcore in 2014, when all the shit was going on with you, and then we didn't talk, and then, you know, it was just fucking worst time ever. So, you know, that's why I'll always fucking pick up your fucking phone call and always answer every fucking text. You know what I mean? Because I would have felt like the worst fucking person on earth if I didn't, you know, talk to you, and then all that shit happened, you know? I mean, I've had some dark times, and I and you're the only person that reacts evenly keeled hard carl's way too emo <laughs> um max lives too far away and juice doesn't pick up the phone half the time and bartletti will just want to go eat somewhere <laughs> and um i just appreciate you i appreciate you as a friend i am proud of you as a former student who's become the king and I love everything that you do for the people that you care about and your impact on hardcore is still being, still being made and you're still writing what your story is. And it's absolutely been fantastic. And I hope that you continue to keep that same balance of DIY spirit and youthful vigor for the up and coming bands with a cardinal respect to the foundation bands that you enjoyed because I think that balancing point is why the formula works and why you've had so much success because you have all, you've checked all these, uh, these boxes off and, um, just do the, should probably do the self aggrandizing promotion gimmick here and sign off. Yeah. Just, uh, FYA fest on all social media. Uh, don't follow me on my own personal shit cause it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, I just, I appreciate you having me on. I know you felt like I was felt, uh, slighted cause I haven't been on yet, but I promise you that's not what the case was. And, uh, I'm glad I was the 50th and 51st and I'm glad that you stuck with this shit cause I fucking love this podcast. And yeah, I just want to thank you for, you know, the years of fucking friendship, probably 15, 16 years at this point. And yeah, you're just a great friend and I, I appreciate you having me on. There's nothing that I do hardcore related that I don't look to what you have to say, your opinion, your insight, your thoughts on it are integral to the things that I do. And I feel like it's, um, it's important to say that. And for a long time, you've walked with me either just to make sure things went well. And because you give a fuck. And I think you understand. Likewise, I'm in the same position, you know, the, the, the things that you do 
I want to be your biggest champion and your biggest cheerleader and let the world know like, no, Bob's the man and he does this shit. And it's hard because it's hard to pick out who's going to be on this fucking show sometimes. And then I get in my micro focusing, Oh, we need to do this and this. And it's like, you know, um, some of our friends asked to be on the show where (laughs) you've always been more humble and been like, no man, you know, like it'll come around when it comes around. And this has been, as I say to some people, this has been some of this is this this time has flown by, even though it we're literally almost at we're over the three hour mark. We're the three and a half hour mark easily. Christ. And I never did now, a speech in high school, so I, I don't know how to fucking do that shit. So that's crazy. No, and, and that's the other thing is is like now that you're on the show, because you, you're like, God damn, that's long. <laughs> now how quick to me this felt so quick because we know each other so well. And that was another reason why for 50, yeah, you know, it would have been awesome to do some, you know, ancient legend guy and all this stuff. But no, I wanted to pop one of my best friends in the entire universe, someone who will be down when the ship is going down, no matter what, time and time again, who has achieved greatness and has carved his own path. And I'm just so proud of you. I hope that people who are enjoy FYA understand the person behind it and understand the machinations, the motivations, the inspiration, and just thank you for a great episode. Yeah. I appreciate it. Now this has been awesome, buddy. This story was incredibly close to me and because of it, I probably had some bias, but for me, Bob has a huge role in hardcore now and over the last 10 years, if not 15 years, if you look at what his bands did, the people that he interacted with, and how it all kind of culminated in making the FYA Fest what it is today. Bob is a leader from the front. Bob supports everybody. His story was fucking fantastic, and I hope you enjoyed it. For me, I've got a lot more episodes coming. The ball's rolling back again. The technology, the computer, it's starting to work out a little better. Um, After... Labor Day, I begin a lot of organized recordings to get the Patreon stuff up. Nah, I hate being the guy with my hand out. And those who kept their Patreon, hey man, thank you. Uh, We are working. We got some cool ideas, some jump on stuff. I got a shit ton of Q&A that'll go up first on the Patreon. And then, depending on the outcome, I think people like the Monday. We'll see everybody likes the Monday and the Friday. Um, especially with me doing rule of three podcast, I don't know how much podcasting or how much I want to put out in a given week, but some people were saying it's going to be kind of cool to listen to something Monday. That's only like an hour or two hours. And then the longer one that comes out on Friday, we'll see how the format goes. The one thing I'll say is that I'm stepping my fucking game up and I hope that you come along with me. Make sure to buy your ticket for FIA fest. You can find tickets at fya8.brownpapertickets.com You can find Bob's Fest at fyafest Gmail and Twitter or not Gmail, Instagram and Twitter You can hit me up directly at the Joe Hardcore on Instagram You can find me on Twitter Find me on Facebook, I might not even read shit Just pre-warning you You can check out This Is Hardcore Fest on Instagram on Twitter, on Facebook, Philly Hardcore Shows, as we said earlier, on Instagram and Twitter, even on Facebook, but I don't read that shit. I think Chris still does, but I don't. 
And thank you for all the support. We got so much cool shit. The Keystone Hardcore Jam. Uh, those sold out Knock Loose shows. The sold out weekend with Earth Crisis, Snapcase, and Strife. The No Pressure Show. Bob's got some bands. Coyo and um, Soul Blind. There's a new venue called The Yard. Thanks to Mikey Bafalco. And Bob's doing a show there September 10th. There's so much more shit coming up. And I think that maybe Mondays might be the scene report to jump up, letting people know what's going on. We're going to try that out. Maybe, maybe pull it into its own feed. Maybe keep it in the, in the This Is Hardcore podcast feed. I don't fucking know. We're just spitballing here, trying to keep you people entertained. But thank you for listening. Thank you to Bob. And he can't wait to hear what you have to say. Make sure to write me. I have a lot of my friends who've been hitting me back and forth. Love hearing the people that listen every episode. I love the insight. So these are the DMs I do respond to. And those of you who write me every week, you know I always get back to you guys. Thank you for the support, and I'll talk to you next week. Peace.